it wasn't until like the last day in India that I finally had like an aha moment of like finally loosening up and letting go and, and just, you know, not necessarily a learning curve of, of skill and technique, but a learning curve of, of being comfortable with my myself and my ability. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Tom Paddlehauser, or Captain Tom, as he is known across social media. I, I wanted to speak with Tom just because I absolutely loved his travel sketching. But the more I learned about his work, the more fascinated I became with all the different amazing things he does. And, it, and then on the morning of our recording, I became really nervous because I'd realized that I'm horribly underqualified to hold an intelligent conversation about the subjects that Tom knows so much about. So my role in this conversation begins as an overexcited noob trying to learn all he can about how animation works. That's our subject for roughly the first hour. Tom tells me about his education and work in the animation industry and the various artistic roles that he has occupied on his way to what he calls his dream position, that of art director. To give you an idea for how little I understood these things, my first question to him is, hey Tom, what's an art director? From animation, we move to Tom's other great passion, which is skateboarding. On this subject, I am more than sufficiently knowledgeable because of my years of experience playing Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 on the PC. We take the long way around these wonderful, interesting topics and arrive at Tom discovering the joy of outdoor sketching while on a motorcycle trip through Southeast Asia. How did this manifest into a love for urban sketching and travel sketching? What value does drawing from observation or even just the act of drawing on paper have for a professional animator whose day job revolves around digital tools? Earlier, Tom and I sent each other copies of our respective books. I speak to him about the experience of visiting Palestine and putting together this book of his sketches in the latter part of our conversation. We talk about the technical and curative aspects of putting together a book of your work. And so if you're at that stage of your creative life as well, you will find many interesting things to pick up. Follow Tom's work on Instagram or check out his website using the links in the show notes to see some of his amazing work. You can visit my website, that's sneakyartist.com, or use the link in the show notes to see a summarized transcript of today's conversation and also find my other work. Hello, Tom, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm so excited to speak with you today. Thank you, Nishant. Very excited to be here. Uh, Tom, you do so much different work uh, that this conversation was very difficult for me to plan. I tend to not overplan my episodes because I really like uh, to let things go wherever they might go. But uh, there were so many opening gambits, so to say, <laughs> that I considered. Uh, and uh, this, so I think the first half of this conversation is just going to be a lot of openings that I thought about and then I rejected and they, they've, ended, they've ended up coming afterwards. I want to start with asking you about your work as, a, as an art director, as a creative director. So as someone completely outside of this world, can you tell me what is the work of an art director essentially? 
Sure, I'll, I'll do my best here. Yeah, yeah, I can see how that's um, a confusing a confusing thing to get into when talking to me, but essentially it's like there's one job that pays the bills, um, one job that uh, is creatively fulfilling and another one that's just uh, a passion project that I started with my friends that I'm kind of stuck in now. So that would be like art directing and animation, you know, urban sketching and art, and then my little skateboard shop in Ottawa. But uh, yeah, to, to, to answer your question, so as, as an art director, um, specifically for animated uh, features and TV shows, um, my job is essentially to oversee and manage and maintain the artistic direction of, of a project. So what that means is my director has a vision for how, how they would like to tell a story. And the director and I will visually come up with the storytelling language. And, uh, you know, early, early in the production, I'll be very hands-on and very involved in helping create that look. And then uh, throughout the rest of the production, sometimes it lasts six months, sometimes a year. And in the case of the project I just finished, a year and eight months. Um, then we'll, we'll bring on a team of designers and it's my responsibility to um, get the get the best performance out of that design team and also to make maintain a specific um, quality standard and also a very specific um, look and feel. So long ranted story shorts, um, I try to make 10 to 15 people draw and paint like one person. And, uh, and then, you know, af after things go from design, I mean, we will probably get to um, all the different all the different little compartmentalized um, sections of an animated production but uh, yeah I work with you know first with the director then with the uh, design teams and then uh, you know throughout the production the animators the modelers the the surfacing artists the background artists all that stuff just making sure everybody's on the same page because yeah if you ask if you ask you know, essentially the reason my job exists is because if you ask 10 people for their opinion, you'll get 10 different opinions. So you need somebody, somebody with the final opinion. And that's, that's essentially me. Right. And not only will you get 10 different opinions from 10 people, I also wonder about these kind of projects that work over a long time about how ideas and just motivations might change over time. So maintaining stylistic consistency what are some of these things that you know you you kind of nail down very early and that you don't mess with afterwards how how do you decide between these things because surely inspiration and motivation is a good thing also that you don't want to stifle but if you've got a project you can't endlessly be reiterating it right mm -hmm. well um that's why we have a production team <laughs> So we have uh, we do have a team of people that that help put the brakes on when things are going a little too far artistically uh, or exploratory wise. So we do have a production team. There's there's a producer, project managers, project coordinators, and project uh, production assistants, and that team essentially makes sure that everybody is delivering work on time, is getting the right information, that the artwork and um you know a animated assets are going in the right place and they help us manage and put the brakes on but for the most part i mean the more experienced you are the more you know when to let go 
and when to fight for something. You know, that's a lot of my job is um, is choosing my battles. So there's only so many arguments you can make for revisiting something before you're just, you know, trying to fulfill your personal ambitions as an artist rather than serving the story and the production and the budget, right? So that's, it's it's a really tough one. I have to say, especially as as a lot of artists know, you know, by the time you finish your your piece, you're you're upset with it. You're you've moved on. You've learned new things, and you can't stand to look at it. And you just have to be experienced enough to know and identify that that's part of the process. It's like you don't you know don't throw out all the hard work that's been done over the last three months because you had a eureka moment. You you're now stuck with the trees and the bushes that you decided early on, and and. And you just have to maintain, yeah. It's I guess, you know, and th- that got easier for me with more time and more experience. You know, early on, yeah, you'd stay up all night noodling and redoing and revisiting. But um, yeah, working with working with a big team helps too. You know, you bounce an idea off of people, and you can ask, you know, am I being am I being um, overly precious about something, or or is this an actual legitimate call that we have to make and uh, revisit a piece of art? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's so true that over time you learn more about these, these battles because you've, you've played out so many of them. And uh, so I'm curious to know about this journey. How, how did you come to be, how did you come to be doing this kind of work? What kind of education or experience early on went into it? What were your interests when you were young and that kind of pushed you towards this kind of uh, creative expression? Sure. Um, yeah, it's, it, that, that, that's an interesting one. It might be a bit of a long answer. Um, but essentially, you know, as an art director, I'm doing my dream job. Um, I absolutely love art directing. It's, um, I love, maybe, maybe, maybe describing what I love about it first will help me kind of go down the path of why, what it took to get there. But um, yeah, what I really like is, um, is, is being, a being in in a relative amount of control over a project because I I do find that uh, with with my experience, um, with, with with the various different experiences that that I've 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 um, collected as an artist, it's um, it's essentially I, I like being in control of the project because I feel like I have a lot to offer um, mm-hmm. with with various various experiences collected from different disciplines and different projects. It's nice to be able to contribute to a project above and beyond just the art. So, for example, mm-hmm. um, I worked as an animator. I worked as a background designer, um, a background painter, a cleanup artist, a prop designer, a character builder, and and all of these different um, all of these different experiences and jobs. Um, led me to have a reverence and a respect for those positions. So as an art director, I can make sure that the art we're creating is production friendly and has the whole team's best interests in mind. You know, it's um, so, you know, starting on that journey, um, I I was a pretty interested in art um, back in high school as a teenager but um, only in the only in the capacity of you know any teenager really where you know in in the culture that I grew up in in the skateboard culture I had a lot of friends that were um, weren't were in the you know hip-hop culture and graffiti culture and uh, you know I grew up um, idolizing that world 
and especially these were all like older skateboarders that I looked up to that, um, you know, that were, you know, painting on trains, painting on walls. And, and this was like late nineties, early two thousands. And it was pretty big, um, graffiti at the time. I mean, it might still be big, but I, I'm just not, uh, not very in tune with that, uh, that world anymore. But yeah, just seeing, seeing these, uh, these, these people that were rough around the edges, you know, like these, you know, skids essentially just like skate rats skate kids um doing producing such intricate meticulous and fine works of art in in an illegal way i don't know there's just something about that world really really inspired me and i and i did take a stab at it i tried really hard to <laughs> to get into it but i was never any good and um it just i didn't have the killer instinct to like go out and like paint on a wall and like run away from police you know so i just kind of <laughs> kept my my uh my pieces in my sketchbooks and on like low-key low-key walls but uh yeah you know going through high school that was that was basically the extent of my 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 um artistic interest and experience and then um near the end of high school i i ended up doing an internship or a co-op placement um at an animation studio here in ottawa so that was a that was a world that I didn't know existed, and I had discovered just by chance. You know, my um, my dad had a, floor, a hardwood flooring business, and I was working for him. And one summer, and one of his um, one of his coworkers lived with a guy who worked at an animation studio. It was Mercury Filmworks. That that was that was where I ended up getting my first job, actually. And uh, he mentioned to me while we were having a conversation about internships and co op. Um, that you know this place takes takes students all the time to do whatever grunt work coffee gopher photocopiers whatever so yeah I, I gave them a call looked at looked into that and uh yeah so for for my last year of high school I did an internship in a co-op placement at Mercury Filmworks where I just discovered this world that I never knew existed it was incredible um you know I met uh, I met some very good close friends one of them one of them that I still skateboard and do art with to this day and the other who's actually my current boss at another studio. And uh, yeah, those guys were also skateboarders, also artists, you know, fa family men. And um, yeah, it was just very inspiring to, to learn about this. And from there, uh, you know, for me, the choice is pretty e easy. I'm like, this looks like a career that I, I would be really interested in. There's jobs in it. Um, you know, people can sustain a living and, uh, and it's super fun. These guys are, these guys and girls are just making cartoons all day. And, uh, and in my little, little hometown of Ottawa. So from there, I went into the local college, um, where I took a traditional animation course. It was a three-year program here at Algonquin college in Ottawa. And there you basically learn the fundamentals of animation all on paper, all by hand. And you're just, you know, going through the motions, uh, learning the discipline of flipping paper, repeating, repeating frames, repeating drawings, and just learning about, um, yeah, the like hardcore um, classical, classical uh, style of animation. Right. And from there, I got my first job at Mercury filmworks um because i had my my contacts um, from my internship it was a lot easier to get in touch with them and um, and get into that uh there's a funny story about that if we have time later i'll tell you about how how i got that first job is is kind of by accident but um just to go through continue down the career path so i started as an animator that's kind of how everybody it, it was an entry-level position at the time and and still is um to a degree 
and uh, worked as an animator for several years. And while I was animating, I knew that I wanted to not necessarily get out of animation, but I, I was still really into drawing larger scale designs. You know, I was, I was really into background design and location design. That's something that I kind of specialized in in college. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to do and get into. But it was a really tough job to get into at the time. It was it was a lot of um, well-established senior artists doing that role because everything was done on paper. These long, like, um, you know, from from 17 inches to two meters in length, uh, camera pan drawings of environments. And and I just loved the look of that. You know, these, these this department would put on cotton gloves, have electric erasers, like sable hair brushes, and, and a series of pencils and 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 pens and I just loved, you know, animating was all done with a computer mouse and a keyboard and you're just kind of moving moving um, pieces of a puppet from one frame to another. And it wasn't, it wasn't what I romanticized about in college when we were drawing everything by hand and uh, that, that background department was still doing everything on paper and I, I wanted to be, you know, be a part of that. So uh, yeah, I did. I did did what I could to get in into that. And as um, as a junior artist, I kind of worked through what was called layout design. Layout mm-hmm. is layout. Sorry, layout design. Yeah, layout art. So basically, essentially, what you're doing is um, you have a design department that does the master designs of a location, and then you, as a layout artist, will draw all the different camera angles. Because in animation. In classical animation, anyways, or what the, what they call two D animation, there isn't an actual camera moving from one spot to another. It's it's all imaginary and simulated, right? So when the camera, when you and I are talking, what's behind you, and what's behind me, somebody has to draw two different backgrounds, not just move a camera because the space doesn't exist. So I worked uh, in that department for for quite a long time. Uh, moved up into supervising. And from there, I, I got my foot in the door in design. So like um, designing props, um, worked as a cleanup artist uh, with with my mentor, Dave. And uh, I was just cleaning up his work. And yeah, sorry, this is like a long answer, but it, it's- I love it's, it. We're, we're, talking, we're talking about a 15-year a journey here. So yeah. <laughs> that took, took quite, a bit of, quite a bit of time. But yeah, essentially- um, background design is what I stay in for the majority of my career, location and environment design, um, everything from line art to color. And I absolutely loved, loved that world because it, it was one of the last departments where you're physically creating, you know, your world building on paper with inks, with pencils, with watercolor, with crayons, mm-hmm. markers, all that stuff. So it was, it was quite creatively fulfilling. Um, and even, even when it switched to digital, <coughs> excuse me, even when we switched to digital in the mid 2000s, um, it was still fun because we still did our exploratory drawings, our research all on paper, and then we'd transfer everything digitally and start drawing on tablets, on Cintiqs and Photoshop and Sketchbook Pro. But um, yeah, I just loved the idea of of, of building worlds. And uh, and it's something that I've I've kind of continued doing as my own personal art. And uh, from there, the the move into art direction kind of just happened naturally, from from just having experienced so many different departments and from having developed a personal style of art outside of animation. I think that's something that really helped me a lot because um, a good a good art director, like nowadays, you know, the, the studio that I work at, Jamfield, um, I am a supervising art director, so that means 
I, I help um, crew and staff the projects that we work on now, which means I get to interview other art directors and put them on various projects and make sure that everyone's the right fit. And what I, what I always look for, um, and it's possibly a personal bias just because of my own experience, but you know, that's kind of all I have to work off of is, um, is, is I look for a developed personal style because what that tells me and something that I've worked so hard on that's helped me in my career is, is you can establish a look and maintain it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and create a consistent world. And I think that's, that's kind of, you know, other than, um, understanding the productions and, and, um, all the different nuances and pieces of the, of the animation production puzzle, it's, it's also really important to be able to, um, understand what something needs to feel like and how to maintain that, you know, and there's, 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 um, there's a, there's a mood and an energy to a specific style and a look, you know, it's not just like, let's make the building, let's make the building wonky or, or lopsided just because we want to, you know, that that's a personal ambition rather than something the project needs and understanding the tone and the mood of the project is, um, is very, very important. So. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the that's the the long way, long way, and 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 along that way, I mean, there's 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 a tons of little little stories here and there, and and you know, I make it sound like it was easy, but it was it was quite difficult, and a lot a lot of late nights, and um, and you know, moonlighting on one project to another, having to leave a place, um, come back to a place, um. Yeah, 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 it's a it's a it's a pretty dynamic uh, industry. I'll 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 leave it at that. <laughs> right, and it's it's a dynamic industry, and in in the sense that it's also kind of redefining itself all the time in so many ways. Because these tools, like you mentioned, you mentioned uh, starting to uh, when you were studying, you were doing everything on paper and literally flipping the pages to see how the how good the quality of the work is. And within a few years, everything would shift to digital and these digit not only was everything shifting to a new medium but the new medium was completely reinventing itself every year or every couple of years i remember those early on mid 2000s when every year there would be like this stunning new program which can do these stunning new things so yeah. it's 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 is it, it was it like a process at that time of constantly ad- like uh, readapting to new things constantly uh, new things becoming more and more possible that weren't possible until a year ago yeah, absolutely. It it changes. It changes with every project we work on. Like every every production we do, we invent new tools um, and new new shortcuts to get. You know, animation is all about cheating. You know, everything you're doing is an illusion. Um, you're 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 get, turning an inanimate object into an animated object. You're giving giving life to nothing, right? And uh, so part of that is just finding finding more effective and efficient ways to do things. And part of that is also time and money, right? If you have all the time and money in the world, you can potentially produce anything you want. But uh, that's that's rarely the case, especially in the in in my world in television. But uh, yeah, it is it is it is difficult to keep up with um, keep up with and adapt to all the new technologies and tools and softwares and. Um, and trends in also how what people are gravitate towards as far as the look of a project. But I will say this, the fundamentals are unchanged. The fundamentals have stayed the same since oops, Steamboat Willie, essentially. Um, you know, did, Walt Disney's first uh, first animated project. 
But uh, yeah, if you understand, um, you know, the, the principles of design, if you understand staging, composition, um, you know, the, the dynamics of motion, you know, an animator understands um, and is an expert in not only acting, but timing and spacing, what happens when and for how long. These are all these are all fundamentals that it doesn't matter what what software, what computer, how much processing power, or what kind of new tablet you you give one of these people. the The principles are always the same, and 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 you you adapt to your new tool. You know, um, building a house isn't about the hammer; it's about it's about the the engineering, right? And the engineering, you know, minus a few new bells and whistles and tricks, it's it's essentially the same. You're you're working with physics. And, uh, and, and that's that. So yeah. yeah, it's, um, it is tough to keep up with, but at the same time, you know, maintaining your traditional skills, um, keeps, keeps you relevant no matter what the software is that, uh, that you have to transition to. Right. I also found it very interesting when you were talking about your early life and about the graffiti, hip hop and the skateboarding culture of the times, because I'm a big fan of graffiti in general. Even if I don't like a particular piece of graffiti art, I really like the fact that someone did it. And it's it's this sense of it's this sense of uh, ownership over public over the public sphere, like having being able to sign your name on something that is not it it almost feels like it's defiant in a sense and i love that feeling the way that somebody can feel like they want to inscribe their name against against a a public building or a wall or a structure and i love how it ties into skateboarding culture because so much of skateboarding culture is also around things that are not even things well dilapidated is not a very polite word but <laughs> it's around it's around owning and using things that have often been left and abandoned by by development. Yeah, absolutely. They're 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 one and the same essentially. You know, it's um, like in, in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater in the video game. There there mm-hmm. is a, a a game you can play called Graffiti where you tag stuff by doing tricks on it, right? <laughs> it's, um, and and they're they're one and the same. You're you're using something more creatively than um, than what it was intended for in the first place. So like a wall that's there to keep moisture out of a moisture out of a building um, is now being used to display artwork. Um, right. The, the same way that, uh, you know, a, a bench where the only purpose was to sit on um, from noon till 1 PM every single day, every single weekday is now being used in the evenings and weekends for, you know, for, for a wide variety of skateboard tricks, grinds and flips, whatever it's, um, yeah, it, there, there's something about. You're right. It, it it is defiant because this is not what you're supposed to do here. <laughs> um, but it's also beautiful because it's 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 just thinking differently about something, you know. And and I I, I absolutely love that. And it's it's yeah. I mean that that's my whole world. <laughs> that's my whole world is uh, is using something the way that it wasn't meant to, or looking at something and and documenting and recording it in a way that I would prefer it to be, you know, it's um, yeah. yeah, and and that that kind of that kind of thinking takes conviction, but it's also such a precious thing that we shouldn't lose as citizens of of a, of any part of the world. 
incidentally my ties to skateboarding also extend and end at tony hawk's pro skater because i was <laughs> a champion at that game i played the yeah. heck out of it and i had i had incredible high scores <laughs> so oh, i me just, too. just me want too. you to know that i know everything about skateboarding on the virtual <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that that video game changed everything for skateboarding so you know it's I, I I was skateboarding before that game came out, so I remember what it was like before. You know, getting getting chased home by uh, by like jocks and thugs and stuff. You know, like so skateboarding was a uh, was 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 dangerous not only because of the physical uh, risks you take as a sport, but also like dressing like a skater in the '90s and like right. you know wait, waiting for a bus. Like you were getting, I don't know why people people wanted to just beat on you, but. It was, it was a thing like running home from school, getting into fights all the time. I see that now with, um, with kids, you know, because, because of the skate shop, I see like, you know, 14 year olds to 18 year olds all the time now coming in and out of the store. And I see the way they're dressing. I'm like, Hey, I used to dress like that, except I was getting my ass kicked (laughs) when, when I wore pants that baggy. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And, Um, And now it's an Olympic sport. Yeah, absolutely. And like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, that video game changed everything, right? It it was it was like ninety nine it came out. Tony Hawk did his ten eighty at the X Games. Or sorry, not not ten eighty, geez, uh, his nine hundred. Um I'm gonna get I'm gonna get destroyed for that comment. But um yeah, it, it became popular, it became in pop culture. You then had like, you know, Bam Marger and MTV and Jackass, like Avril Levine. all that that whole world. Yeah, skateboarding was huge, huge in the uh the mid to late well. I would say like early to mid two thousands and then it died in popularity around the time that I opened my shop. And uh, <laughs> now, now it's on the rise again in, in a more interesting way though. It's, it's, it's cool. Cause um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of like uh, girls plus getting into skateboarding. The, the culture is becoming a lot more um, open and accepting to outsiders coming in and, and trying it. And when I say outsiders, you know, don't, don't take it. Like, I don't think, people should be involved in it but it it is a pretty tribal culture um you know it's 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 it it's counterculture in its roots it's tribal and because of it it's like you kind of want to make sure the people that are there have really earned their place to be there so it's not a very welcoming thing to get into or hasn't been you know when i was growing up and now now the the tables are turning a little bit things are you know, with with um, skateboarding getting into the Olympics, with uh, with how many people are freely sharing stuff on social media, it makes skateboarding look a lot more fun when someone's just personally sharing sharing clips of how they skateboard to the internet mm-hmm. for everyone to see, rather than just these are the videos that the skateboard industry has approved that are the standard of skateboarding. It's like, you know, tricks that you know you put your foot in the wrong way or or your head's in the wrong place, like you're ending up in the hospital. You know. Right. Just like getting as gnarly as 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 possible, but um, yeah, things things are things are getting very interesting in, in a way that um, I haven't experienced before. So I'm just kind of along for the ride now, and and seeing seeing what uh, what comes of it and how we can be a part of it. Yeah, I I always find uh, things ha- uh, become really interesting suddenly when the original gatekeepers or the original uh, people who preserved it and nurtured it and they sort of take the form of gatekeepers going forward because they are preserving it and nurturing it still. But once their roles become redundant and things take on a form that perhaps wasn't initially envisaged or envisioned by them, 
and there's always some resentment but things tend to become more beautiful once that initial control is gone and they, it it just blossoms on its own and goes in all kinds of different directions yeah exactly and and you know you just have to let it do its thing that's that's just that's just how how nature works right it, right it's, yeah you're right you're right you're right to call it gatekeeping because that that's absolutely what it is and like we've we've contributed to that in our way as well where we grew up a certain way and we're like this is how it should be done and 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 it's not necessarily that you want to keep people out or gatekeep but that's what ends up happening but the goal and the intention you know for someone like me was well this is how I was taught so I want to pass that on it's like you know, you're supposed to, you're supposed to learn how to ollie before you learn how to kickflip. But like, who am I to tell you what, what to do? And, um, and that also comes with experiences, knowing when to, when to shut up (laughs) (laughs) and to just let it go and when to, and when to offer advice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, I think of how, um, it may have started from a place of rebellion and feeling out of place or, well, uh, rejected, so to say, by other conventional uh, measures of popularity. But it's also now turning into this measure of independence and breaking free of of, uh, chains in oppressed or repressive parts of the world. There are people who are using this as an expression of their freedom. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what that's what brought me to Palestine. Right. And um, and it's 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 an excess. It's an accessible sport that isn't just a sport. It's it's a it's a whole culture. Right. It's um, it's it's creative. It's artistic. It's good for the heart. It's good for the body, you know, pending how you fall. But um, yeah, there's just so much that skateboarding can offer the world. And um, and because it's so bloody difficult, like it's 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 unbelievably difficult. You know, the thing is not. And obviously I have a bias when I say the sport I do is the most difficult sport ever. Um, but it is, you're, you're on, you're on a, you're on a wooden deck, um, that, that pivots when you, when you rotate your ankles, um, it's on wheels that happen to have very high performing wheel bearings and you're not attached to it. And the whole purpose of it or, or the conventional, you know, standard of skateboarding now is to flip your board land with your trucks on something grind it and flip your board and land and roll away and that's that that takes that takes an an incredible amount of of pain and discipline and repetitive repetitive attempts to to get there you know like a lot of people will watch skateboarding at the skate park or something and think like what what are these people doing like like i've seen one person land a trick in the last hour and everyone else is just like kicking their board around like yeah that's that's what it is for every every 150 tries you're going to land two one of them being something that's very unsatisfactory and 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 upsetting to you and then maybe one more that's that's mint and then and then now you have to work on maintaining that discovery and that builds that builds some very serious character mm-hmm. because it really weeds out people who don't want to be there the older you get, you know, it, it's, it's a really difficult thing to maintain and keep up. And and you see that with like, with scooters being so popular. And now I'm going to sound like the the grumpy old skater hating on, hating on scooters, but so be it. Um, you're holding on with your hands. So it, in, in a sense, the, it, I wouldn't say it's easier in the grand scheme of things because the fact that you're holding your hands introduces a whole new dynamic to the sport and the activity. 
so you can get a little crazier a little sooner. But um, the learning curve and the introduction is much um, shorter, quicker, and easier. You know, to to be able to push down the street on a skateboard versus holding onto your scooter and pushing down the street. Like there's a reason, you know, a, a toddler can do it um, on a scooter and, uh, and not necessarily on a skateboard. So yeah. And, and, and you, you see those two things play out. Um, one is more accessible in the beginning, but the other, once again, here comes my bias, um, seems a little more, um, a little more like it'll put its claws in you and, and hold you there for the rest of your life. And yeah. That's kind of, you know, my, 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 my take and my experience from, from skating. Absolutely. And I, I completely understand. And uh, like, it is actually, it is a bias in a sense, because we tend to prefer our experiences and the journey that we take towards something as being the, as, as long as we're successful at it, we think of it as the right journey towards whatever we're trying to get to. And everything easier than that means fewer lessons learned or fewer Mm -hmm. or lesser commitment or things like that uh in this light i I was also thinking about your uh, like you you mentioned romanticizing paper over digital tools so how how does it feel now in in this animation industry where fewer and fewer people are perhaps working on paper and it's almost like starting into art is the, the starting tools are digital tools yeah, that, that that that's something that's actually a topic that we we discuss on a regular basis, um, you know, in, in my industry. And it's 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 an interesting one because it, it can be polarizing, but it's um, it's just a very interesting debate like digital versus traditional. I've had many, many um, like almost fights about it with people before where they're like, it's the same. I'm like, well, it's it's not the same. Uh but they both have a place and they both work, work together. I think um, for me, because I learned, um, learned all of this traditionally, I have a nostalgic attachment to it and a romanticized or a romantic idea of what it, what it should be or what it, what it used to be and what it could be. But um, I also feel when I had to transition into digital, for example, we work uh, primarily in Photoshop, which is not a painting or drawing tool, but it is the industry or has been and is still hanging in there as the, as the industry leader uh, design tool. Like we use it, we use it all the time in animation and and mostly just because it's become an industry standard that it's really hard. It's like, who's going to use the next software first? Because if our clients deliver us work as a PSD, we have to manipulate it, recreate it. But um, you know, transitioning to Photoshop and working with a Cintiq, you know, I I use um, you know fountain pens and dip pens. You know, so I'm anyone that uses those understands the um, the connection to like cutting your paper or like hearing that scra- that screeching, scratching metal grinding against a against a rough piece of paper and that resistance and that that tactile feel is what gives you um the feeling of what you're doing and also dictates the style in which you're working you know a pencil draws different than a pen right there's a there's a there's a place for both but when working digitally i found the biggest learning curve for me was the fact that you have this one plastic wand that does it all it never feels different. It never has a different weight. It never resists differently, and and a plastic screen that you're that you're you know um, 
gliding, gliding it across. And uh, for me, that was that that took years to get over, and and it still does. You know, if I if I spend a weekend working on a project in inks, and on a Monday go back to my Cintiq, like my drawing is completely off. You know, there's there's nothing, there's no resistance there. So so like for me, the digital versus traditional actually becomes more physical than the work itself. That's like the the I guess the problem and the learning curve that I have with it, and and not to mention when we get into the softwares. I find that the your ability to not have to commit to anything is is actually a deterrent in my work and my speed and efficiency. So, you know, when 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 I work and most of us work, we have uh, in our drawing hand we've got our we've got our stylus, the little little plastic wand, and on the left hand our hand is on the undo button, yeah. right? Like you right. you know this, <laughs> your your one hand is on the undo and the other. So it's like you are constantly you're constantly at a battle with commitment so you you draw the line and you undo you draw the line you undo you draw the line you undo oh this one's pretty cool let me just move it into the place where i actually want it to be this one's close enough so so that that actually for me in my line of work because we're all about time and money um and how how much quantity can can you get done by friday it's it slows me down um mm-hmm. the result is arguably better or debatably better i don't know but uh, it just slows me down not being able to commit to stuff so that's why i i practice um sketching with with inks and watercolor and like we can get into that later but i chose these mediums first um out of out of necessity for um how portable they were but eventually you know i dropped dropped the pencils altogether and went straight to ink because i liked the idea that i was going to war with committing to a illustration or a sketch and having to work around mistakes that I made. And that um, in a, in resulted in being more efficient in decision-making when I go switch to digital. I already have a library in my head of what things should be or shouldn't be, and, and I can kind of move through it faster. And like, I even challenge myself sometimes to do pieces where I'm zoomed out one mm-hmm. layer and and just stop undoing. It's like, give yourself like 20 minutes without an undo and, and see how far you get. And, and the drawing actually has, I find a better quality to it because you're, you're getting that working through problems rather than just wiping, wiping it out, out of existence and doing something new. You're, you're keeping mistakes on there and building off of that. And, and that depending on the style you're going for can, can add and contribute to the, the charm and the and the character of a piece right and right, yeah. uh, when i see when i see when i see artists now like some some of the work especially with procreate it's indistinguishable at times like i i don't know if this person just did it in charcoal or pencil or gouache or pastels i'm like that's incredible and when i see you know on instagram someone to be like uh, digital procreate i'm like how the f- did you do they look so i i don't have an ipad or or right. have any experience in procreate but um once my laptop tablet goes that's that's definitely what i'm going to get and start messing around with because i'm so curious that, you know seeing the results leads me to believe that the program is very intuitive and a pleasure to work with whereas yeah. photoshop i find is not right you know, um, any any yeah. anyone working for adobe i i apologize but you'll you'll probably agree <laughs> with me that adobe was never meant for painting and drawing it's just uh it's a production tool it makes it makes it so my artwork is very editable for the thousands of comments that i get on it from my clients 
And, and that's, and that's that it's not necessarily an enjoyable process to be for me anyways, to be making art in Photoshop. Yeah, I, I agree with so many of the things you just said. And let me take this opportunity to uh, preach to you about Procreate because <laughs> I've been a Procreate and an iPad user for eight years now, right since the first version of Procreate that came out. So I've been with them. And one of the main motivations that I'd say, especially when we're talking about comparing it to the Adobe suite, is that I paid $8 for it in 2013 and I haven't paid anything since then. And I've been with them for all the upgrades <laughs> and all the amazing things that this app can do yeah. across all the iPad devices since then and the introduction of the Apple Pencil, which wasn't there before. So I would highly recommend it. And I want to wrap up all these different beautiful points you made by telling you about my association with uh, digital versus traditional uh, tools or analog tools. So uh, I, I started because when I was young, there was no concept of digital art. So I started with drawing the way everybody starts to draw. And I was, I've always been good. I've noticed now actually looking back at my young stuff that I was always good at copying scenes, but I was, I've never been good at creating scenes. So this is my big obstacle. And I reached a point where I started drawing these web comics in like 2009. I started drawing web comics and I was in the final year of my undergrad program with not very much to do. And I wanted to make fun of things. And I wasn't very good at art at that point because I'd given it up as a younger person. And I started drawing these stick figures and I always have this problem that I want it to be perfect. So I would keep erasing it and it would never finish. And I wanted it to be online. So there were these, there were too many processes involved in getting that done. And I, someone bought me a tablet and I connected it to my computer and I downloaded a pirated version of Manga Studio and I started drawing on that. And it helped me get so much done. And after that, I graduated to an iPad. And again, I had this joy that I don't feel bad about trying something because I can undo it. I don't feel bad about throwing down a certain color because I can just play with colors now and see what looks good and what works. And it's not coming at this incredible cost of ruin, quote unquote, ruining my drawing. Mm -hmm. The thing that I'm good at versus the thing that I'm bad at. And I, uh, the, the better I am at one thing, it makes me more and more reluctant to play with the other thing and therefore get better at it. Because the only way I'll get better at colors is if I do more colors. But if it comes at the cost of my, drawing being ruined i'm less likely to play with it and be more conservative so i end up not doing agreed that. agreed and, and at that time the digital tool was amazing for me because it completely set me free try this color doesn't work change this color drop another color and it was all procreate for me and it's become 10 times better as an app that than it was even then and it was great even then and today it's just fantastic to use but again after a few years i reached this point in my learning curve, which is exactly what you describe about the tactile feel. So I realized that I'm, uh, so there's this amazing plethora of digital brushes and all of them look realistic. You use the charcoal brush, it's got pressure sensitivity, it's got angle sensitivity, and it looks exactly like charcoal. And then you use colors and they mix in this perfect way. And you use watercolors versus oil paints and they do their own perfectly simulated physical dynamics and tactile dynamics. But I'm always using it with the Apple Pencil on the iPad. So that tactile sensation is the same regardless of what brush I choose, whether I'm using a pencil or a paint brush, 
it feels the same. And I end up using it the same way, I realized. So I'm doing the same thing regardless of the pressure dynamics. And that means that I'm not really maximizing the utility of this brush and all that it offers me. So I reached a point where I realized I need to figure out how this real thing works. So I need to go back to paper because I need to see how brush feels on paper so that I can then recreate that loyally on my iPad. But again, my problem with doing stuff on paper was this fear of ruining it. And I did something exactly with the same motivation that you just mentioned about going to ink. I decided that I'm just going to move forward and I'm not going to move backwards. So I picked up a fountain pen and I decided I'm only going to draw in ink from now on. I'm not going to do pencils. And if I make a mistake, I make a mistake. I just have to own it and I have to turn the page and I have to incorporate those mistakes in interesting ways. So I started very early before I was fully confident with how to do it with using direct ink on my work. And it became, it led to the, so this is the part that's interesting to me is that it led directly to the development of my art style. And forcing that uh, commitment out of myself to commit to a line that's now on the page so I can't go back on it. And then the kind of instinctive trust and confidence or even a bit of I don't I don't care what happens kind of attitude, it led to the evolution of what became my style of art. And for the longest time, for so many years, I was convinced that it's definitely too late for me to have a distinctive style I'm at best going to be able to draw well, but I think having a style or a look is definitely beyond me. But choosing this path of having fewer choices, having more constraints helped this thing to come out. And it brought me to this realization, which I often make on my show. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this idea that the things we think of as constraints often set us free. So putting these deep constraints in my work that it's with ink on paper, so there's no erasing, there's no undoing, there's no there's no hiding what I've done. It's a solid black line. It is a constraint. Not working in colors, working with just one or two pens is another constraint. Whenever I look at something to try to put it down on paper with these few tools in the little bit of time that I give myself is a constraint. But these constraints pushed me to explore more deeply and to create something out of my limited choices. And again, I contrast that with my digital work, which I'm doing less and less these days, that simply having a thousand brushes at my disposal led to incredible decision fatigue. And it led to never really having anything distinctive that I was producing. Everything was another possibility that could be done in all these dozens of ways that I'd seen online in other people's finished works. So what do, you, what do you generally feel about this idea of committing and having these constraints upon your work? You've, you've touched on so many things that, that are so um, deeply connected to me and my own thoughts. Um, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, and when you look at the, some of the pros, even in Procreate and in Photoshop or like in Corel Painter, um, you look at the pros and they have those constraints. They use like three or four brushes. You know, the, the, the top, the top level designers have, have the experience to have identified what you've described and have created a look and a style and an efficiency in that. Like, like even the project that I just worked on, um, we, we just wrapped up a, a year and eight month project with Netflix and, you know, my, my design team and I used 
maybe six brushes and that maintains the style you know it's like the sky is always always this brush um, whatever it, it, it's also efficient but you, you i want to i want to touch on what you said about um the the constraints and the limitations and creativity i think you know creativity comes in so many different shapes and forms but i i agree with limitations being the thing that helps unlock creativity um you know doing doing something wonderful and unique with very little is um is very creative i mean it's the same way you know we were talking about skateboarding or graffiti you're you're using you're breaking out of something's conventional purpose and making art out of it making something different something unique and, and the same way you're right it's like how many different ways can you use ink uh, or watercolor or a pencil and and i mean the answer is is we'll see <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um and it does it does create create a unique look and and yeah i i agree with you in 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 what you said with um with putting these constraints on you and, and reducing your materials to create that look and feel that you're now known for and and i feel the same way you know ink and watercolor you know some, some of my friends in animation chirp me for for not um branching out enough and not like experimenting with other things but i'm i'm still pretty busy with this i don't feel like i've 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 discovered and like you know i'm not done with ink and watercolor or i'm i feel like i'm just getting started actually so i don't really have with the limited time that i have i don't i don't want to bring like a bunch of oils and acrylics and gouache with me just to see what it would look like i'm i i already know the war that I'm having or the battle that I'm having that day with the, with the materials that I have. And I'm still trying to find different ways and more efficient ways and more interesting ways to use that medium. And yeah, you're right. And like looking at, looking at your own art and your book, it's yeah, you talk about digital versus traditional, you created a look and feel based out of the limitations that you set yourself up with and, and the inks and the, and the watercolors and the markers. Um, it created a, a charm and a consistency right and that's the thing too is is um an artist that i that i admire and respect once told me name's dan marshall he said um you know <laughs> forgive me if i'm misquoting here something something along, along the lines like he's like i may not do a uh like a, a masterful job every time however it's always consistent he's like one you recognize one painting from another as as coming out of out of his hand and and that comes from using similar tools in a similar process and um and and having those limitations in a style and yeah like when you're working digitally you're right the the possibilities th there's too many options and uh and how do you how do you make sure that you have the experience and the discipline to limit yourself you're like i'm only using this brush i'm only using this brush for for fills and only this one for skies you know it, it does come with experience but um yeah, I remember like in the early days, you're like, oh man, there's a, there's a grass brush in Photoshop. So I guess that's what I use for grass. But I'm like, well, that's not creative. That's me taking the one that Adobe told me to use to make grass. And I'm like, no, grass can be a sponge. Grass can be a stamp. Grass can be, um, you know, putting, uh, using a toothbrush and scanning it and making a brush out of that. So that, mm -hmm. that's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it's, you see so many people creating such beautiful work. Um, you know the only thing that that makes me sad about the digital kind of world is is that um is that connection to playing with physical materials and um i 
yeah, I, I, I have a reverence, reverence for, you know, what a stick of charcoal feels like pointed at the newsprint versus put on its side and dragged for, um, for, uh, you know, for a wash or, or, or for a tone. I think, I think there's something beautiful and fun in that. And you see that with every kid, you know, making and creating. And, um, I just hope we don't lose that because happy, you know, happy accidents don't really, don't really happen, um, in the digital world. You know, you, and like you said, it's, it's nice to, you know, make this, make the, make the side of the building purple and then see what it looks like in, um, in turquoise. And you're like, Oh, you know what? That, that looks awesome in turquoise. That's not necessarily an accident. That's you controlling a dynamic range of, of color properties. Right. Um, but when you're working traditionally, you want to use that purple for your building, but it dries turquoise. That's an mm -hmm. accident. <laughs> and that's something right. like, Oh, like it either makes or breaks a piece. And, and then you remember that moment. You're like, that's not at all what I was planning. I was not in control of this, but this is a really cool reaction and a, and a really cool result. And, um, and also it's, it's, it's then fun to bring those things. Like I, I, I've been lucky enough to work on a, a couple digital projects recently where I'm able to take bits and pieces of traditional work, bring them into the digital world, manipulate them and, and use them. Like you said, um, I like what you were talking about with using charcoal and procreate, but then wanting to experience real charcoal to be able to represent it more accurately, because that's what it is. You know, you're working digitally, you're simulating these traditional mediums. So if you don't have a, you know, a, a foundational knowledge of how these mediums work, it's not necessarily going to be convincing if that's what you're going for. And, you know, like recently I'm working on a Red Bull, Red Bull TV project right now that is trying to mimic my ink and watercolor style digitally because it has to be animated. It's a motion graphic that's animating with mul multiple layers and working, doing that traditionally was just going to get too too time consuming and expensive for the time and budget that we have. So, you know, I'm, I'm importing a bunch of watercolor washes and splatters and, and lines. And then also I made a brush in Photoshop that mimics my ink, but every now and then it's like, what, what you're missing with digital is, you know, when you draw your stroke a little too fast, um, it splatters and you're missing, missing pieces of the line, you know, it, it skipped across the, the roughness of the paper. And that's something that you just can't, you can't, for now, what I've experienced, I can't train a brush or program a brush in Photoshop to miss parts of the parts of the screen, you know. And that's the thing about ink that I find the most charming is is not necessarily what's there on the page; it's what's missing and like where the mistakes are. And um, yeah. Yeah. And like, I, I hope I'm not coming across as like hating on digital. I think it's an absolutely <laughs> beautiful thing and, and the results are incredible and I use it on a the majority of my artwork is digital, even though what I, what I share with the world is, is traditional um, non-disclosure agreements and, and stuff like that with production companies make it difficult to share. But yeah, I, I spend all day long on a Cintiq in Photoshop and, um, and I, and I absolutely love that tool and it, and it's, and it's great. And also, you know, I work, I work tonally when I, when I do my concept art digitally, um, I work in just grayscales. And I get all my tonal separations and values just right, um, show it to a client, and then I go back and color. And then, you know, coloring a tonal piece digitally is like, 
lightning fast. You know, you come up with a rough palette and you're just applying it to layers of of tone that you've already already generated and created. So yeah, it's it's a phenomenal tool. I, I can't imagine doing work without it. But um I I do still revere and value working traditionally in your spare time. You know, that's 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 my that's my uh, personal opinion and bias. No, absolutely. I I don't think it's so. What my experience teaches me is that it's not digital versus traditional. The right way forward is uh them holding hands and use yeah. being used in different productive ways. There's there's a cause for one and there's a cause for the other. So I'm thinking. Uh, I have a couple of questions about this. Um, I was also thinking about how when you talk about uh the brush not being able to do that accidental thing. And the importance of accidents and not only accidents, but what I think of as some kind of a delayed reward, like something that seems like an accident, but it has a beautiful payoff once you get further into your drawing that you couldn't hide this thing that you did. So you worked around it and it created something that wasn't your intention at the start, but it's become a little bit better than your intention at the start. So what I was thinking was that digital art it, art art only makes you a very intentional artist you can do exactly what you thought you wanted to do but you can't accidentally do better than that which is something that traditional art offers this this thing of the artist going beyond themselves simply by accident what is your experience with this and your the importance of accidents in one's work that's a good one um (laughs) i love that so i i i couldn't agree more and that's uh yes when you're working we're I, I also think that uh, when you're working digitally, yes, you are in complete control and you're creating what you imagined and you're designing it and and you're not surprised by the work. You know, when you like make a, you know, the, the, the traditional artists in the room will 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 connect connect to this one or relate to this one. When you when you create something traditionally, there's surprises in it for you. And I love that. You know, I I love um finishing a finishing a sketch or a painting or an illustration traditionally and you know places where i was working faster or or not or when you're like in that zone and you forget what you were doing or you lose yourself in the moment then when you go back and look at it later it's it's also enjoyable for you to experience the art after you know not in like a love 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 yourself kind of way like look at the beautiful piece i did but like you're like oh look at the look at the way this tree turned out. You're like, I don't even remember drawing this. Like my hand just did that while I was looking somewhere else. And, and it's nice because you, you get to have some fun too, rather than just having the war with your art and then giving it to someone else to look at and appreciate. You get to have, you get to have a little bit of the fun as well. You know, people think, oftentimes creating and designing and all that is oh you have the best job ever it's so fun you're like yeah but you're also in your own head fighting with yourself fighting against the medium fighting against the wind the sun the traffic the the people coming by the car parking in front of you blocking your view from from your subject it's it's uh it's like more intense and difficult than it is fun and and those happy accidents are kind of the a nice reward at the end and 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 having enough experience to have identified that i now find ways to bring that into my digital work so 
For example, um, creating a textured brush versus scanning in a texture and using that as a um, as a as a fill rather than painting a fill. Sometimes, you know, especially when you're using like multi-layered watercolor, um, you have spots that are lighter and darker than others you know um you know on my on my website you can see um one of the available animated projects we just finished it's called the snowball so that's an animated uh short short that we produced at jamfield and it's currently i think it's got 11 more film festivals to go in before we can share share with the public but you can see the artwork from it on my website and that's that's exactly what what we did um my team and i is we imported all traditional textures and move them around on the screen to fill shapes until something felt satisfactory. And, um, and that offered a more accidental and charming look and feel. And, and, and I'm trying to maintain that as well right now with this other Red Bull project is importing watercolor textures and using those accidents. And, and it's not, not just to, to make it fun for me, but it, but there's a, there's a certain charm to it that, um, you know, like even, even my clients, um that i'm working with asked me like okay i thought you said you were working digitally like um did you did you paint this i'm like aha i'm glad you asked so so we 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 the illusion the illusion worked you know it, it looks and feels a little more traditional because we've actually used uh traditional elements and manip manipulated and finished and rendered digitally so actually marrying the two worlds is something that that i've been working on in recent years and um it, it makes it fun, but yeah, you're right. It, it's it's not one versus the other. It's one with the other, and which which one will you use for what? You know, which which will help. And um, but yeah, those happy accidents, man. I I I mean that, that my whole my whole world of artwork is is all about that. It's, it's splashes, dry brush strokes, um, missing missing pieces and areas, and and yeah, that, I I just find that very fun. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's I'm nice thinking to not be in control. Exactly. So exactly. So I'm thinking of the the splash brush that also exists on Procreate to recreate the splashing. And how many times I've used it and thought this splash doesn't look real enough. I need to undo it and splash again. And yeah. that idea itself doesn't exist. If I was like, how can it not be real enough? If yeah. I do it actually on paper, this is a splash. I just splashed it. So therefore it yeah. is a splash. But uh, this intention versus, you know, letting something happen, it means that you second guess and second guess, and then you uh, do it three or four more times for it to look natural. So uh, I just uh, going back to this subject of not traditional versus digital, but the way we appreciate art these days is so is so multivarious because uh, there's so much art now that we look at and you're working in a field where your, your sketches of course primarily have to satisfy you and they become a signature of your work but when you're working for clients and you're working for productions and they're going to be the idea is to appeal to so and so hundreds of thousands of people um, how, how do you feel about the the kind of art that is being valued these days because i notice on your website that a lot of work is say low budget work versus high budget work and if it's low budget then it has these restrictions on the the games that you can play the things that you fix the things that you don't fix and you are allowed to move around on your scene but the art that we are it's it's not so simple as if you do low budget that it has lesser appreciation 
the kind of audience that is now and the way audiences are evolving around the kind of art they like so this is a subject that i was thinking of when there was a time when simply something being digital was better and everybody wanted to do stuff digitally and not traditionally but the more you do it the more you sort of breed a counterculture which is that now traditional work is again revered because it is becoming so scarce and things looking imperfect is actually more appreciable than things looking perfect because we see quote unquote perfect uh, special effects and digital art so much that they've become easy to admire and therefore we admire them less is that is that something that's valid yeah i think so it's um i mean i i definitely agree with you you know when when it comes to even animation for example um yeah we we're we're kind of talking about two things here budget budget and and style and and also um uh, imperfect versus very perfect um you know in in the visual effects world on the 3d side there's there's a a drive for technology to to achieve realism right you want to replace having to blow up a car and and the the environmental catastrophe and and expense that that entails with a with a with a 3d um simulated explosion right Mm -hmm. it's it's we want the the computer to be able to do it all and for it to look convincing right um and you know something that that we haven't quite achieved with like um skin and micro micro expression yet um in the animation world or working on it but but yeah like in the in the vfx world um it is all about making it realistic and convincing but and and that's art in its own but um but there is still an appreciation or reverence like i i absolutely prefer and am drawn to leica films so like like as a production company out of portland oregon as 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 i'm sure you know if you're i'm a big fan yeah and so the the work that they produce it's all stop motion it's all it's a stop motion it's a stop motion production company and and those films just like hit me hit me inside somewhere like a thousand knives when i when i look at it it's it's i i absolutely love love that world um you know there there aren't motion blurs on the frame so things are a little choppier and a little like they're they're exceptional animals in fact i'm finding the leica films are starting to get too good <laughs> yeah, it's like i, I understand some, sometimes that. sometimes sometimes it, it's it's almost losing the charm of of what makes you know an industry guy like me drawn to stop motion because it's so good because we're all striving towards improving and getting better and, and up to a point you're like oh okay it's too good <laughs> like let's let's bring it back but yeah stop motion it's it's because it's all moved and sculpted by hand and photographed there's you know you get you get those mistakes and accidents and imperfections and and you can feel that human quality like i i really loved um the last uh, Wes Anderson film, Isle of Dogs. As far as stop motion goes, I loved it. I loved it. Like they owned, they owned the the imperfection of stop motion. Like I, I, I sat in on a panel, um, a behind the scenes panel at the animation festival, and then the art director of that was was describing um, how Wes Anderson wanted to avoid even designing the dogs on paper or or you know doing any designs he's like i want to go straight to sculpt he's like apparently they had an un- unprecedented amount of sculptors on that project where he's like this is going to be a physical project he's like i want to see physical 
physical sculptures of the dogs to approve. I don't need, I don't need drawings. He's like, I just, just get in there and start carving. And um, yeah, I, 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 I wonder what tangent, where this tangent started from we were talking about <laughs> uh, I, I have track don't worry <laughs> yeah imp- imperfection so let's uh staying on that topic a little bit but uh going tangentially a little bit towards the kind of projects that you've done and uh, if you can't name them then please don't but uh, i'd love if you could name some specific ones that you're able to um i want to ask you about uh workflows as an art director and not only, yeah, okay, as an art director is a fair question. So the the way you strategize a workflow around projects that are low budget versus projects that are high budget. And wh- what, are, what are some things that are enabled in the latter? What are some things that you have to definitely control for in low budget projects? And what does that mean for the output? Mm-hmm. Good question. So um, I would I would almost argue that I don't, believe I've ever worked on something that's not low budget. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, a lot of people that I work with may disagree, but uh, to me, it always seems like whether a budget is high or low, it's always too low. It's it's always too low and there's never enough time. So um, what, what, what we do and, and what we specialize in is, is like I was saying at the, at the beginning is um, is tricks, you know, tricks and, uh, and cheats to still make something look, good and believable and high budget, but below. Like, for example, I, I can name the project actually because Netflix uh, announced uh, released a trailer last week. So I, I just worked as, as art director on a Netflix miniseries called A Tale Dark and Grim. And that uh, should be airing. I don't know if they've they've launched an air date, but, you know, sometime soon. Maybe maybe if they haven't, I won't, I won't say anything on that regard. But they did launch a trailer. And so that that's a perfect example of of what I would have considered a very high scope and scale uh, cinematic piece on a low budget um, compared to the scope and scale. So, you know, we, and a very quick turnaround, you know, we did that project in, in a year and eight months and I think it, it needed two and a half years to really, to really achieve the scope and scale that, that we would have wanted. However, that doesn't mean that we didn't do a good job and that we didn't find tricks for it. So, so yeah, the clients wanted a a feature a feature film looking cinematic piece, but it is a TV show, which means it comes with a TV budget. And so my my job as an art director, you know, with with my director and with my design team, is to come up with solutions for okay, what is it that makes something, you know, on a high budget look good? You know, the camera's always moving, everything is more textured. There's more. Um, shot lighting rather than scene lighting. And when I, when I say that, it's like, look at a sitcom, for example, the, the whole stage is perfectly lit from 20 different lights. And no matter where you turn the camera, the lighting is the same. And that's how, that's how you can keep the thing going and film in front of a live studio audience. Um, so in TV on the 3d side, that that's, that's the goal is to um, stage light rather than shot light that becomes very expensive because that means every time you and i the camera turns to you or i we have very specific lighting on us that isn't achieved naturally by the environment and that's when things get expensive so we're like okay we need to we need to limit the amount of of shot specific uh the amount of shot specific lighting in the project and and try and build sets that are lit in a way that will give us the best bang for the buck and we also have to move the camera less because what that means is on a 3D production, 
we have to build, you know, if a camera is flowing through an environment, that environment has to be as big as that camera is revealing, right? So like, you know, you play play Red Dead Redemption or, or GTA, for example, on, on um, video games, they built those entire environments. You, you can, it's a, it's a free, free roaming environment. Everything has been built and there's, there's an atmosphere similar to make things appear further away. And it's, and it's huge. And there's a reason it takes like 10 minutes to load before you can start playing. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, we can't do that to our audience. Um, so building a big set means higher render times, which means more computing power and, and more time. And that, that affects the budget as well. So we're like, cool. What can we do to make this render faster? Oh, step one, smaller sets. So let's be very strategic about what the camera shows the audience about this set. And that way we can have in the foreground and in the background more matte paintings. So just flat, flat 2D paintings that make it look like there's a world beyond the world that we're in, you know, like just um, uh, old uh, stage tricks. And that's something that, that we, use very heavily in this project to make the environments seem larger than life is uh is is painting them off into the distance and separating things on different layers so that they when the camera moves slightly things are moving on different layers and making it seem um, very big so you know that that that's 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 just an or you know hair for example hair and fur we're like we absolutely right. cannot afford to do hair and fur not not a chance in hell we can render <laughs> render a a, a a crew of characters with like a hair simulator. So let's art director, let's come up with a look. Um, sorry, art director, production designer, whole team, everybody. Uh, let's come up with a look for and a solution for hair that still looks good and is is um, is convincing, but isn't what you would expect on 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 a real person. So let's come up with a look. You know what? What we did is we're like, okay, cool. Let's 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 go down to a miniature world and and go into the stop motion um, side of things. What do they do? Because for them too, it's like when you're when you're moving with a stop motion character, hair moves around and it and it and it jitters on the screen and it's not convincing. So they use a lot of sculpture to uh, represent hair. And and you know, we we've we've been sculpting since the dawn of time. There's a lot of sculptural reference for for hair, and that, and that's kind of where we went down. It's um. You know what? What can the hair look like uh, as a caricature of hair, rather than being free flowing, bouncing with overlapping action and all that stuff? So yeah, um, so that that's an example of making some, still achieving. You know, without I'll say without compromise, but only I know the dirty little compromise secrets <laughs> we made. But you know, still achieving without compromise making something look a lot more expensive than it in fact was. And that's kind of what we do all the time. Like I, w I would argue that I've never worked on something, you know, I've, I've been lucky to work with, with very passionate artists and crews and at studios that really care about what they do. Um, you know, our specialty is still giving you no matter what the, what the price you're paying a project that you're satisfied with on time. And uh, it's all about coming up with, with efficient solutions. And it starts at script Nishant. It's, um, if the writers aren't um, aren't playing ball with the budget, then the storyboard artists won't be playing ball. And then it doesn't matter how many design solutions you came up with. If if the writer, you know, line line seventeen is travel montage through various valleys and canyons, you're like, <laughs> screw you, man. <laughs> like, 
we just okay we have we have a limit of 20 locations for this episode and you just added 17 and one in one little line on a on a page of script like no we, we 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 can't do that it's either that or the characters blink and talk so you pick <laughs> yeah do you, do you have to do you have to go back and forth on the script in the early stages also because i'm sure things like this creep in that the script writer doesn't quite factor in the the animation workload for yeah absolutely and uh, and you know depending on what what the scope and scale of the project is sometimes the writers don't even don't even know what the what the scope and scale is they're just like hey write a story about this and then because it's compartmentalized right the writers start you know two months ahead of the storyboard artists who start two months ahead of the designers but if if you get the leads in a room together early on you can come up with incredible beautiful solutions to budget and time limitations and everybody works together and and yeah there 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 absolutely is back and forth but there is there is a vetting process so for example when the storyboard artists get the script some stuff that looks or sounds really good in writing just doesn't come across in animation um whether it be there's just no way to 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 show this in the time we have you know or um or it's a gag that just doesn't read well so yeah there is there is back and forth but um it is you know i'll say this much it is really hard to go back and change something about a script especially on the tv world because we work at like breakneck speed you know in in feature it's different like like they've redone entire features by the time they finished just because it didn't feel right you know like they've got they've got a little bit more um a little bit more room to grow but you know the world that i i work in it's um you better get it you better get it on the first go because there isn't a lot of time to go back. So, so have people with enough experience asking the right questions ahead of time to make sure that you don't have the whoops moments when you're, uh, when you're looking at uh, a finished project in the edit suite, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So um, Tom, uh, I spoke, uh, I've spoken to a few of my guests about this concept that I have in my mind as a, as a self-educated artist. It's how I think about the ideas that I gather. And I think it's pretty common to all kinds of illustrators and artists. And especially, I think it's very relevant to an art director like yourself going from project to project. So I think of it uh, in the way I taught myself to draw as a vocabulary of shapes. And sometimes I've phrased it as a library of good lines. So the argument is that every artist needs to be a librarian in that he needs to collect good shapes and lines that he finds, that he sees, and that he uh, that they interpret on the page and file it away carefully so that they can be brought out again later. But in the context of your work, it's not just lines or shapes. I'm also thinking of it as uh, ideas and styles and themes and objects that belong to those themes and those styles. And I'm wondering about the process of uh, knowledge management in that you sort, you first, you find them, you run into them, and then you sort them and you collage them and you file them away somewhere to use for when the need strikes. So uh, think now that you've been able to name the the Grim Tales uh, project, thinking of that, I was looking at some of the, the, the art involved in that and the way that the trees, the characters, the lighting for these things, the line work for these things, the colors for these things are decided. T- tell me a little bit about this. Like if you're entering into a new project, how do you gather the materials around it, the inspirations around it, then deciding on all these little factors that have to be sort of sealed in before you do the the work of executing the art? 
Sure. So, I mean, every project starts with with um, a creator. You know, uh, seldom seldom are we just dropped a project on our on our on our desk that came from a, a file folder somewhere. Like there always is a creator attached to it, um, and and that creator usually has been working for many many years trying to win the lottery of their project getting greenlit for 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 production, and and they've they've generally speaking, amassed a pretty decent collection of reference of where they would like it to go. Um, and more importantly, where they won't, don't want it to go. And, uh, and, and those, whether, whether we have those or not, you know, some people just, you know, came up with it, came up with a concept and it, it's just written, you know, a lot of creators happen to be writers and they just have, um, you know, documents and documents and documents describing the things that they will, that they love. So, you know, when I when I start with a new client or a new project or or even a new director, um, you know, I, I I feel out how involved they would like me in the inspirational part or how much they would like to me to just download their thoughts and run with them. But if it's if it's on the fun side where I get to kind of have an input, um, it it always starts with the tone the tone of the project. And what story is being told? You know, like like I was saying earlier, it's 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 very important to understand the difference between fulfilling your own personal artistic ambitions on a project versus serving the story and the project itself. And you know, we all, you know, if you ask me what would you like this project to look like, you know, I could tell you, I'm like, oh, well, I like drawing this way, so I would like it to look this way. You know, make it make it fun for me. But uh, yeah, if the story is dark and spooky, but for a young audience, you have to start collecting collecting reference for that. Like, how scary is too scary? You know, and in the in the case of a tale dark and grim, um, that one was for for a young audience. Um, you know, six to twelve is kind of the range, but it is like a fun for the whole family. But you know, geared towards ages six to twelve, uh, PG PG production. So that means that means you want to be using contemporary, uh, vibrant colors while you know, and complementing and contrasting those with dark moments. You know, like if it, if it was up to me, I would go, I would go. Um, you know, the sky is always overcast. There's always like a a slight layer of fog on the ground. There are lots of teals and grays, and uh, and it's 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 scary. You're you're on the edge of your seat the whole time, waiting for what's coming around the corner. However, that's not the story we're telling. The story we're telling is an action co- is is like a, a soft horror action comedy, and it's for a young audience. And young audiences like bright, vibrant colors. And you have to pick and choose your moments of when you want to scare them, or when you want things to be a little darker or happier. So, so you 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 build a reference library of things that have already existed. You know, you know, in this particular case, we were working with Simon Otto and Richie Chavez to like two animation feature legends in the industry. Like, like I was very out of my league working with these guys and they, they had amassed uh, an extensive design library of, uh, of fine art, like traditional classical fine art. And that was very interesting for me because, you know, in my world, in TV world, we, we, a lot of times our clients will show us reference material from other animated projects. Whereas these guys come from a world where they're always innovating rather than, oh, well, this did well with this focus group. So let's do something like that. But like, you know, make the buildings a little taller and narrower. But these these guys are coming from a world where they have to create something that no one's seen before. 
and something that moves them. So they're not they're not referencing animated projects that have already been done. They're referencing master, you know, classical master artists and and finding artists that work um, within the geography that this story is taking place. Um, you know, environmentally where the story is taking place, tonally where the story is taking place, and then, you know, things like dramatic skies and textures. So, so it really depends on the project and the, and the people you're working with. But this one, this one, the reference library was, was incredible. Um, it didn't end up looking like a lot of the reference we were referencing um, because of time and budget, but we created we created something organically and naturally as we were developing the project to serve the story and 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 connect with the audience that we're going for and um and it's 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 no different on any other project sometimes you have more time to develop and gather reference and sometimes you have a day or an afternoon or an hour you know that that's i guess that's what money money uh money and time uh dictates a lot is how much time do you have in um in thinking about the project before you hit the ground running. Right, right. Quite interesting. Uh, now I'm thinking of even outside of these projects, and here we finally come to the subject of urban sketching, I think. Um, I, I was looking through your blog, and I was looking at your travel sketches, and I noticed a very distinct evolution over the years about the, th the well, I like to think of it as the games that you tried to play and the, the little tricks that you tried to pull and how you gained confidence in that in those same tricks over time. So uh, gathering these influences, building this source of repository of knowledge, even outside of a specific project, just as a person who's able to even think about where you would go to refer to something, um, what what is the role of travel and urban sketching in this for you? How, maybe you can tell me uh, from the perspective of how did urban sketching begin for you in the first place? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that. I, I, I've often thought about removing some of the older, older posts uh, from my website because, you know, it's, it's not necessarily work that I'm, I'm, I'm proud of on a daily basis, but I, I kept it and I will, will keep it because it is, it is kind of a, you're right. It's a, it's a timeline of progression and it's a fun reminder and also inspiring, you know, like who am I to hoard, hoard my own journey and knowledge from people you know like I, i've had people share with me along the way and and yeah guess what you, you get to see all of my mistakes and uh, embarrassments as well and uh and yeah so it, it it's the the in the sketchbooks portion of my website there they are in chronological order the way that they've been posted so starting with um starting with um vietnam and working all the way up to um to san francisco you know that that was my my oldest oldest urban sketching trip to my most recent over over the course of i don't know you know 10 10 to 10 to 11 years now and i got into it i got into it because first of all it's something that you're kind of supposed to do in my industry you're supposed to maintain and and keep your life drawing skills sharpened and and for the reasons that I was saying before, uh, speed and efficiency and a design library in your head. You're supposed to be studying anatomy, studying your environment in order to make you a more um, effective um, designer and storyteller. You know, you need to you need to have experienced uh, the limitations that a body can move <laughs> to to not have to reference a body when you're drawing it 
and animating it. You already know in your mind, oh, I know the limitations of like, uh, you know, what, what it looks like when your trap is, is lifting your shoulder and what it looks like when, you're, when your oblique is engaged, for example. Um, and, and so I, it's just something that, that I kept with me from school because when I was in animation school, one of, our, one of our ongoing assignments throughout the year was to maintain and keep a sketchbook. Now, funny, funny enough, when we were in college, very few of us actually kept a sketchbook, my, myself included, because we were so bloody busy just getting our assignments done and like going out and sketching for fun. We're like, who are we kidding? Like, I want to go, I want to go skateboard when, <laughs> when it's, when we're not uh, pulling all nighters, getting our assignments done. So a lot of us would, uh, would get together in the cafeteria, you know, like a week before the, the end of the year and just like sketch as much stuff as possible to make it seem like you maintained it all year. My teachers are going to hate listening to this if they, if they happen to tune in, but that's the reality. And, um, and it is what it is, but, um, it, that's where, that's where it essentially started is, is we were taught that you have to maintain a sketchbook. And now uh, as an art director, as a designer, as a person who, who does look and scout for talent to put onto projects, I always look at people's sketchbooks as well, because it tells me a lot about you as a designer. It tells me a, that you live life like a designer and that you're constantly challenging yourself and, and having these little wars and battles. So I'm like, cool, you're, I can relate to you. And I know that you're putting in the time and work. You're not just like showing me 10 of your best and most refined images. I can tell from your sketches that that you can think quickly and efficiently and effectively and and let's go. You're in charge of this show and uh, have fun designing the characters. Um, that being said, it's it's an incredibly difficult thing to do, especially you know when you're coming out of college, learning how to animate with a with a mouse. Like my my drawing was absolute garbage, um, and I had a really hard time doing it and working traditionally because we're were so afraid and so inexperienced it was it, it was an absolute nightmare to be working in a sketchbook especially the fear of someone being coming up to you and be like oh can i see your sketchbook you're like no <laughs> especially when you're when you're being honest with yourself in a sketchbook you don't want people to look at that stuff like it it, it goes deep in your soul and you're like okay how do i how do i get over this so um you know I just I just did what I could to 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 maintain sketching. I knew that I had a really hard time. I actually, yeah, to 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 go back on on a thought here. I I couldn't draw in sketchbooks because of that. I, I had an absolute fear and a phobia to have a collection of work inside a book that somebody could look at. Which is, to me, have, having come out with that Palestine sketchbook. You know, one of my biggest life achievements to this to this moment was just physically sharing that with people. Because in the beginning, I absolutely just refused to draw in a sketchbook. I didn't want a collection of work for anyone to see. So I would draw on loose leaf paper, you know, scraps and stuff. Because then I was able to be more honest and more free. And, you know, if, if, if I don't like a drawing, throw it out off to the side. And no one has to see, hey, there's a page missing here. What was on that page? And uh, so, yeah, like, you know, coming coming home from work and sketching things like facial expressions and hands and feet because those things are very difficult to do to 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 sharpen your skills um to be perfectly honest i i had a hard time doing that because i found it so hard to come back after a day of work into my basement and draw more I, it just it just didn't it just it felt like work and it wasn't coming across naturally and and i just i really struggled with it and and 
things were things were not looking very good for uh, for a, a young artist wanting to become a designer. And uh, luckily, you know, my my one of my oldest oldest and best friends and mentor, Dave Merritt, who I actually dedicated the uh, the Palestine book to, he he. I started working a lot more closely with him once I got into into the uh, my layout job where I was doing different camera angles of things of different shots. He he's a traditional painter. Like when I met him, he was still doing background designs in gouache um, for for production. Like he he when I saw that he finally got a Cintiq and was working on Photoshop, I, I couldn't believe it. But so he was he was a traditional painter and a plein air painter, you know, acrylics and oils, landscapes, um, urban urban paintings, you name it. And and it was really thanks to him. Uh, he would take me out with him and and show me show me tricks and techniques and. Uh, and taught me to be comfortable with with drawing more from life, and and as a result, I found oh, I like drawing a lot better when I'm outside, you know. I'm and so what I'm getting is is two birds with one stone. I'm doing something fun and physical, but I'm also getting better at my craft. So I'm like, cool. This is this is this is what I would like to do. And this like forget drawing hands and feet at home. I'm gonna go draw people and places outside and uh and just deal with deal with the the complexities and the um the variables of that and and it wasn't until i think i had been working for in animation for about eight years at this point now so like i i maintained and continued this stuff i never took urban sketching i never even knew what urban sketching was to be honest for me it was just uh reference reference gathering and um and life drawing but um, I ended up getting like terribly burnt out from animation. I was working too many. I was wearing too many hats, you know, being a being a yes person and um, and taking on too much work, o- over ambitious, all, all that, all that terrible capitalistic <laughs> corporate stuff. And I ended up I ended up uh, resigning and quitting the animation industry and, you know, took a took a hiatus from it trying to discover what it is if anything that I still liked about it and if there were different career options and this and that and uh, I I ended up um, taking a trip well sorry Ugh, let me let me let me rewind a bit so before that I, I went on a um, was it before or after geez I can't even remember now it was after so um, I quit animation. Uh, decided to take a year off and went um, went down to LA looking for work. This and that went went to uh, went to an animation uh, convention there. Got totally totally shit on by by art directors and designers for the portfolios that I was showing them. And and I noticed a pattern. All of them were looking at my work and unimpressed and asking me things like, you know, what software did you use to make this art? They're like they're like. You want to be a designer. He's like, I want to see, I want to see you immerse yourself and live in, live in design. He's like, what, what is, what are, I'm like, well, I, I, I'm a cleanup artist. You know, my, th- this is done by hand and, and I specialize in drawing very clean, straight lines. And um, it was actually Nelson Lowry, the, the art director from, um, from, uh, from Paranorman over at Leica Studios that, that I waited in line to, to talk to. And, and he, he gave me some really good feedback. He just basically ripped into my portfolio and uh and was was actually like sighing as he was flipping the pages and i was just like oh man and then he was he was then he started going on going on about um you know like where's where's the traditional stuff like how do you get your hands dirty? he's like when when we 
design things. He's like, we, we research from life and we, we, we study a place and discover and play and make mistakes. And I was like, Oh, oh well, I have a sketchbook in my, in my pocket that I carry with me. And I showed him that. And, he, and like the tone change, he was like, Oh, this is cool. And was flipped. And it was absolutely terrible. Like I, I, I you know, this is, this is like 12 years ago. I would never share it with, with the world, maybe one day as a joke, but um, it was terrible stuff. But he was like, this, this is the stuff I want to see. He's like, this is, this is the ticket to, to design and to art direction and all that stuff. He's like, I, w- I want to see more of this and develop this. And so I, I was completely deflated, but then energized because at the end of it, he's like, everything you've done up to this point is total crap. And, 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 irrelevant to the kind of work that you say you want to be doing but light at the end of the tunnel you also have some stuff that shows a little bit of potential so so i i um i then um after that animation convention rented a car and extended my extended my trip in la and and drove up the coast to san francisco from la along the one and uh, I decided to just stop every hour and sketch. I was like, okay, I'm determined. I'm not just gonna like do this like it's like it's my last day on earth. And uh, and to be honest, I the more I did it, the more comfortable I was with with mistakes. Um, the more I started to learn that the fact that you're absolutely viciously angry at yourself and the drawing that you're doing is part of the process and part of the growing pains. And the more I felt comfortable being okay with it and and continuing on. So. After that, um, yeah, I, 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 I stayed out of the animation business and uh, decided to, to, go, to go traveling and to, and to pursue this. So I had already, before that, gone on a trip to Vietnam where, where that was the first time I brought, um, brought the tools that I use, use to this day. So ink and watercolor and a little, little um, travel sketchbook and tried, tried as much as I could to, to sketch here and there. But you know that was that was uh that was my first time in southeast asia um first time driving a motorcycle across a foreign country with a crew of friends who for a lot of them was the first time they had ever been on a motorcycle or in asia as well so we w- we were just getting our butts kicked you know like 14 hour days getting lost um driving driving countrysides traffic so it wasn't much of an art trip but it taught me what it would take to make more of an art trip you know it's like okay be be a little more ready, a little more uh, planned out uh, or prepared, and and set time aside for for drawing. So, fast forward a year later, um, I decided to take a trip uh, to to and across Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, um, Bali, Lombok, India, Istanbul, and and back through Europe. So I, I basically you know did did what most people do after high school, except you know ten years ten years later um between between career moves took a year off and just went traveling and and I decided to make it about about art it's like I'm going to be I'm going to be taking a break from animation and I'm going to be focused on just sketching because I'm start I, at that point I started to fall in love with this stuff and uh and and yeah so I I just I just went went traveling to these places and and sketched along the way and and tried to learn while on the road you know practicing mountains while the mountains are in front of you like um i wish i was a better artist now now in retrospect because there's some of these moments that i will never relive or never see again that i wish i could have documented more effectively or more efficiently but um 
it's all part of the journey. So yeah, that that's that's essentially what did it for me. And when I came back from that trip, um, you know, that that was uh that was seven months on the road just drawing. It wasn't until you know, five months in when I was when I was like it was like the last day in India um when I finally started to have like an aha moment. And you can actually see it in my sketchbook. So I've got all these like really nasty notes to myself, especially the the further back. I've 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 stopped doing that um <laughs> nowadays and I just make it more about the 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 joy of cataloging rather than like what kind of a green is this, you idiot? Or, you know, like learn how to compose your shots, you know, they're just really like nasty, nasty notes to myself. Some people find it hilarious to read, but um, yeah, it wasn't until like the last day in India that I finally had like an aha moment of like finally loosening up and letting go and, and just, you know, not drawing straight lines, you know, misshaping buildings, going a little faster and, and a little more um, liberally with watercolor. And, uh, and, and from that moment, I was absolutely hooked to this stuff. You know, it was like, it was like I had reached not necessarily a learning curve of, of skill and technique, but a learning curve of, of being comfortable with my, myself and my ability. And that, and that allowed me to start enjoying what I was doing rather than, um, working so hard at trying to produce something. It, it kind of took the edge off, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah, so true. Um, now I'm thinking, uh, since travel sketching came to you so much after years and years of working in animation and in illustration, and that that is both traditional art and digital art, uh, did this have an impact on the way that you did your other art afterwards? Because, um, so did the art you did before influence your travel sketching and i'm sure it did but in in what ways did it do that and did the travel sketching once you really got into the groove of it and you really started to do this there are so many factors in travel sketching right like so you mentioned uh being in vietnam and not sketching as much because you're in this new world and you're doing a lot of things for the first time and everything is so uncertain and you're in a group of people and i find that when i'm in a group of people instinct immediately the sketching goes down because you don't uh, take that same liberty with your time as you would if you were on your own so travel sketching is interesting to me because there are so many of these factors at play how comfortable you are in a location that's foreign to you how comfortable you are in a in a weather that might not be so agreeable to you uh, the kind of the 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 a number of people around you the company you're keeping and the tools that you've got plus things like fatigue or distraction so uh, did that did these constraints again coming back to constraints and limitations and obstacles let's say did they impact your style of art and did that have a uh did that have a carryover effect on the the animation you would do later yeah ab absolutely so the evolution of of urban sketching for me came down to exactly like you put it limit limitations so it's like i've maximum have about an hour and a half in a location before whoever I'm with getting completely frustrated with me that I'm, yeah. that I'm wasting their time or before I need, I just need to move on because you can't stop and sketch all day because you also have an agenda of, of, of getting from point A to point B, you know, especially because a lot of my trips are traveling my motorcycle. I need to make it to a certain destination by the time it gets dark or, 
or I may not find a place to sleep um, as easily as I would in the light, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and one hour is kind of the sweet spot. And that, and that's what I've been working at and have worked towards is one hour from start to finish. And then maybe, uh, maybe 10 minutes of taking photos and videos for Instagram. <laughs> that, that part I absolutely can't stand. You're like, I'm ready to move on and get out of here, but I have to take these stupid pictures because it's the only way for me to keep relevant and alive and have people <laughs> yeah, <laughs> see my work. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that, 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 you know, being on the road in, in the ways that I am, um, that has influenced the way that the art looks because I, I'm like, okay, I've got uh, 30, 30 to 40 minutes to do the line, um, including drying time, and then about uh, 15 to 20 minutes to do a watercolor wash over it. And the more I do with line, my darkest darks, my lightest lights, and describing, dis describing uh, structure and form, the less I have to do with watercolor. You know, the watercolor is there just to, to add tone and, uh, and, and some like hues and values and, um, and just bring the scene to life. But it, it, you know, if you strip the line away, you would, you would have no idea what you're looking at. You know, I'm not, I'm not a painter. I'm a, I'm an illustrator. And, um, and yeah, so that, 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 that speed out of, out of necessity has influenced the way that my work looks because it has to be done faster. And even, even when something is more complex, I take more liberties and shortcuts with a subject. You know, if, if a building in front of me has a, a thousand windows on it, um, I'm probably going to only draw every third window and represent it with a dot. Yeah and, yeah. and, and it's the shape of the building and how the light is hitting the building that is more important than the, um, than the stonework around each window in that particular case, um, unless we're doing something more focused. But yeah, it it has it has absolutely influenced the way the way that the work looks, and and as a result, because I've just kind of created a consistent style, like it it just automatically seeps into digital and professional work. Like there's 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 no way to um, to turn that off, you know, and and it also dictates the kind of projects that I work on now digitally or try to at least, right. It's, there's only, there's only so much choosing that you can do um, when it's, when it's your livelihood, you know, sometimes you got to work on something that may not necessarily be something you want to be affiliated with, but um, yeah, it's definitely at the, at the forefront of my mind. And uh, like, even for my, for my skate shop, right. Like I do all the, all the design work for that. And it is, it is primarily based on the line work that I do because, you know, we're, we're dealing with silk screening. So like, you know, the, all the different tones and values that I added in my watercolor work doesn't necessarily translate very well to the way that we, we print and manufacture stuff in skateboarding. So I've, I've limited it to line work in the meantime, but it's, it's, it's the same line, you know, like ink, ink line, um, you know, ink, ink splatters and like handwritten pencil, pencil fonts and, and, and titles. And so, yeah, it does, it does, it does seep in. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Um, uh, I'm glad you mentioned windows because windows are also my nemesis. I hate, <laughs> I hate having to draw windows because they're really tedious to draw, especially if you do line work, because you have yeah. all those borders in perspective and all those shapes. And I, I did, uh, a lot of my aggressive learning in urban sketching happened in Chicago. So lots <laughs> of skyscrapers with lots yeah. of windows. And then with my natural disinclination to draw windows, again, this uh, idea of not wanting to draw it 
made me want made me uh, focus on other things how can i still show you that there's a building here and that it has windows and still fulfill this i uh, this need in me to never ever draw windows and <laughs> to still suggest perspective without having to do this tedious task of drawing all these lines and imagining that my what my perspective should be and being over deliberate with it which is something that i so consciously try to avoid um so actually this this i was going to ask you about something else but this what i just said reminds me of something else i want to know um doing uh, doing uh, animation on a project versus doing on location sketching there's this flip between very deliberate planned work and instinctive work done in an hour so do, do you enjoy this flip does uh, do, does one inform and improve the other yeah i th- i think i think they're very same so so one thing that I find when I when I talk to people or when I when I have my workshops, um, people are always surprised at how, be, given the nature of what the result is of my work or what it looks like, they're they're surprised with how slow I go. You know, like you may think an hour an hour is is very quick to produce a piece, but when you look at what what pieces you know like what a brush stroke looks like like i i i do plan them you know some stuff is like quick and spontaneous but for the most part there is i can't turn that part of my brain off i just you know unless unless i'm like sketching sketching um people at a bar and i've and i've used substances to turn my brain off <laughs> right exactly um, if yeah. i if i'm urban sketching i can't turn that designer part of my brain off so that that's that's something that you know i've 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 gotten comments for that's that's um, something I'm known for in my work is is the way that it's laid out on a page, for example, in the compositions that I that I use for staging. So I definitely look look at a scene and I imagine how it's going to exist on the page. I already I've already decided that before I start my line work, and it obviously changes, morphs, and evolves as I'm going through it. But the initial plan is that I want, you know, a large building with a little bit of breathing room at the top and bottom an equidistant amount of breathing room at the top and bottom of this image and i have to and i have to always consciously be maintaining that with every stroke that i put because i can't stand you know when we work in design and illustration we try to avoid tangents um and when i say tangents it's things that are uncomfortably lining up with one another for example if uh if a person is in front of a lamp and the lamp is over the the person's head is overlapping the the overlapping the lamp in such a way that it looks like they're wearing a glowing hat. Right, that's yeah. that's what we would consider a staging tangent. So these are things that I try to avoid and exercise in my pieces. And 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 to me, a tangent is also what lines up with the center of the book where it folds um, mm-hmm. and how close things are to the edges. So like padding, padding and layout on the page is is kind of the the first thing that I think about and then the rest of it is uh, is a battle of 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 light and dark values and uh, and and figures and and motions and, and and all that stuff but um yeah it's 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 really hard you know I, I I consider myself a designer rather than an artist you know I don't I don't create imaginative emotional pieces from my mind I I tell stories that are relatively grounded and terrestrial based on things i've experienced you know and that and that that design all that all those design rules are really hard to turn off and i and actually i i enjoy working with them i enjoy 
I enjoy rules because it's fun to re respect and understand and use them. And then also to have, have enough of an understanding of when to push them, you know, like, like you were saying with them, um, with perspective and windows, it's messing around with perspective is, is a, is a fine art in its own. Some people can just naturally do it because they don't understand perspective or, or they're just so gifted that they know how far to push them. But for me, working in, in, um, in creating believable spaces in my day job, it's really hard to, to turn off perspective. So I try to at least push it by, by exaggerating, you know, exaggerating a building here and there, but the overall scene does maintain like a pretty, pretty realistic and believable perspective. And like that, that's the part that I find, like when I teach my, my, my workshops, um, I titled them effective and expressive urban sketching. And that's essentially at the core of what I teach is, is effective because rules and expressive because quick and fun and traditional tools that cannot be erased. Right. So that's yeah. like, it, if you were to sum up like an eight hour day into one sentence, it's that it's. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I like to think of every page on my sketchbook as a, as a world that I'm creating. So there are ways that I can play with perspective and it will work on that page as long as everything plays with perspective in that way, because that page is a world. And when somebody looks at that drawing, they accept the rules that I have put down on it. Those rules don't need to be real or accurate, but they need to be. So there's this thing that I uh, tell students in my workshops about the difference between accuracy and precision and how we confuse the two terms. So accuracy is how exactly correct you are. So if you're throwing darts, how close you are to the center is how accurate you are. But precision is how consistent you are. So if you're always off by so many circles, if you're always off by that, then you're very precise, but you might not be very accurate. And we think we need to be accurate in our art, but I argue that more than accuracy, you need to be precise in your art. So if in your sketchbooks, you create a consistent world with your wonky perspective, then that's all right. Your perspective doesn't need to be accurate. It just needs to be consistent. And I think the challenge becomes way tougher in the kind of long projects you do in animation, because then the task of being consistent is stretched across that entire project. It's not scene by scene by scene. Yeah. And, and you also have to be able to explain why to a design team, right? It's, it's, it's like the more you push and add artistic flair to your to your designs um, for an animated project, the more difficult it is to explain to people the steadfast rules behind it for them to be able to recreate it. If you're like, yeah, I use like a wonky perspective. You're like, okay, when, you know, be, people want to know when do you use it? When do you not use it? How do you use it? Why? You're like, uh, so you know, like that, that, that's even a rule that I have as, as an art director, a lot of that position is supervising design and, uh, and, and mentoring the design team. So if I can't explain to somebody what to change in their piece, um, that isn't like a design principle, then I, and then I either do it myself or, or just leave it, leave it be, because then it, then it just becomes a subjective artistic call. And to me, that that's just my own opinion. Sometimes my opinion is the one that matters because I, I'm responsible for it. But it is it is a good rule um, to follow to be able to explain to someone using actual principles that they will understand of how to how to how to change and um, and um, 
and revise something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I went on. It's, a an, it's another <laughs> another good reason to have a sketchbook on the side to play these, uh, play your own games on your own rules uh, from time but to I time. Love, I love I love what you said about accuracy and precision. I might use that one. <laughs> Please, yeah, I'll send you a graphic that also explains it very nicely, so you can cool. share it with people. Uh, another thing you said that was very interesting to me, like an hour-long drawing, which looks like, um, like being slow versus giving the appearance of being fast. So uh, recently I did this uh, thing. I often do this in a sketchbook. I draw these tiny people. So I sit in a corner cafe and I look out and I draw people at the traffic light. And this is a stylistic choice. I enjoy doing it, but it's also an exercise in being able to capture essential dynamic situations at speed. So I'm going to learn as I do it to draw people better. I'm also going to learn how to instinctively jump at what about them stands out. So I get better at spotting things that stand out. And of course, the trusting my line work and developing what becomes my style. So uh, in an hour, I found somebody, uh, I posted it on Reddit and somebody counted the figures. I found that in an hour, I'd drawn 100 people this way on like uh, like an A4 sheet of, like a small sheet of paper, not less than A4. And that sounds like so many people so quick. You drew 1.4 people in a minute. That's really fast. But I reverse calculated that and I'm thinking about uh, quick versus lazy or quick versus slow. So usually when I'm drawing people at a traffic light, I'm drawing them in like 10 seconds or 15 seconds because that's how much they're gone after that. And uh, most of these are single line drawings. So like 10 seconds, 15 seconds. And if I'm drawing (laughs) 1.4 people in a minute, I'm effectively drawing for like 20 seconds out of 60 seconds. And that's not really, really fast. That's actually pretty slow because I'm spending more time not drawing every minute than I am drawing. Right. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the appropriate amount of time to be spending on that kind of subject and that kind of exercise. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just a side point. But uh, what I want to come to now is uh, we just spoke about how travel influences uh, art. But I want to do the reverse about how, uh, and uh, I want to do this with context to your Palestine book about how art and the idea of urban sketching and the practice of urban sketching, this need to do this in a sketchbook when you go there somewhere, how that influences travel in the sense of the places we go to, the places we spend time at, and the things we look at in the time that we spend. So, Maybe we can use this, we can speak about this with specific respect to your Palestine sketchbook and the book that you've put out, which is super beautiful. Um, tell me a little bit about this trip. Was Did you already have a book in mind when you went, when you went there? Let's take a short break here. Tom needs to stretch his legs and I kind of need to do the same. At the same time, I also want to tell you a little bit about my show and some of the new things that I've been doing. So uh, I've been making the Sneaky Art Podcast for a little over a year and I do everything around this show myself. It is an independently created and managed production, generously supported by several patrons and listeners. Some of my listeners support me per episode, as in when they choose to do so, and others commit to supporting me every month with a small donation. In return for their support, I give my patrons a little extra with every episode. 
Starting last month, this extra turned into a second exclusive newsletter with its own exclusive podcast called the Sneaky Art Insider Podcast, delivered directly to their inbox. Tom and I spoke for nearly four hours, and almost an hour of what we recorded was a postscript, as I call it. In this postscript conversation, we basically sit back, relax, take a deep breath, and just kind of talk about what we just talked about. It's something that I've found myself doing with pretty much all of my guests at the end of our recordings, and one day it occurred to me that this section is quite valuable and is a whole other conversation in itself. And maybe some dedicated listeners should get a chance to listen in. So, for example, in the postscript of this episode, Tom asked me about how I self-published my book. I tell him about the circumstances behind that decision and the different wonderful ways that it has paid off. We also talk about Palestine a little more and what it's like to be a tourist and a sketcher in a foreign country. We talk about the 1,000 true fans model, the decline of social media, the rise of blogs and newsletters, or what we may call intimate media. And I preach the gospel of the creator economy. And that's where you come in. You can support my work by becoming a sneaky art insider. This means supporting me with $5 a month or $50 a year, which basically boils down to one cup of coffee per episode. That's it. Your support would help to keep me going, to put in the hours and the effort required to do all the work around this show, behind the scenes, in front of the mic, before and after the conversation, typing, retyping, and recording these words that you hear coming out of my mouth right now. So, I think you would really like becoming a sneaky art insider. There are lots of privileges in addition to the bonus content, including a private Discord server where we all hang out and talk about these episodes. To learn more, tap the link in the show notes. But for now, my legs are stretched and Tom is back in his chair, so let's get back to this conversation. Uh, Right before the break, I'd asked him if travel influences his art. In the context of his Palestine sketchbook, can he tell me how art influences his travel? Should I repeat the question or do you think no, you're ready to go? I, I remember, yeah. So, so you were just asking about um, how travel influences art. And now we want to talk about how art influences travel and the choices of those places and then segue into the Palestine project. Yeah, so so yeah, that, that, that's a very interesting one because yeah, it is, it is absolutely um, connected to to where I go these days. So, so for, for example, let's just l- go back in time a little bit. Um, you know, I, I went, I went to India, um, a, because I had, the, I had a friend that was willing to go with me who had family there and it, it made, um, it made traveling a lot more enjoyable having somebody that can, um, you know, speak some of the, some of the languages and, um, or one of the languages, sorry and uh and and able to help me get around but uh, also i was just drawn to the to the 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 urban chaos of india right um just 
signs on signs, cables, wires, cars, tuk-tuks, bikes, uh, people everywhere. You know, I just thematically I'm like that's that's the kind of art that I want to be producing is just like you know trying to make trying to make um like controlled compositions out of such a such a dynamic dynamic um place and uh while while in India you know uh, my buddy Mark that I was with was um was was making arrangements to go back home and I was trying to decide where to go next because I had only planned up to that point but I wasn't ready to come back home yet and um actually we were on a uh we were on a a a boat ride from one island to another uh back in uh between bali and lombok in uh in uh, indonesia and they were playing a movie on the boat ride and it was it was uh skyfall uh the james bond film and the opening sequence there's a motorcycle chase on top of the grand bazaar in istanbul and I remember just seeing that sequence. I'm like, where is that? I'm like, now now that I'm a, an urban sketcher or like <laughs> right. you know, someone someone who travels to sketch, I like slowly started to convince myself that 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 was my that was my art and started to identify with it a little bit. I'm like, where is that place? So I, I I did a little did a little bit of googling. I'm like, oh, that's 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 Istanbul. It's actually not that far from from where I am, or not that far of a of a journey from where I am. And uh, I'm gonna go there and just draw. You know, that that would have been the first time in my life that I decided to go somewhere to for the sole purpose of creating art. I went by myself. I had no plan, no idea of where to stay. Um, and I just decided that I was going to stay there, stay there as long as I, I could and 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 spend my days drawing. So I originally was going to go, you know, to start in Istanbul and, and do day trips and travel, travel all around Turkey. And actually visit visit a little bit of histor- historical sites and, and and different different cities. But the moment that I got into Istanbul, I just I could not leave there. There was there was there was so much so much to draw. Um, people, food, culture, architecture, just spires everywhere, mosques everywhere. Um, uh, the the Galata Bridge, people fishing off the bridge. It was it was it was unbelievable. I I I could spend my whole life just just drawing in that one place. So I actually ended up just finding a place, um, finding a spot to rent for two weeks in a in like a small inn, and uh, and just went out at you know six seven a.m. and and spent my whole days just sketching. And that that's where. That's where I really started to develop a lot of the shorthand and techniques that I that I've been working on and with to this day. You know, it was it was just immersing myself in like 12 hour days of just going around and sketching in a small place. You know, I don't have to travel. I don't have to get on a motorcycle. I don't have to get on a bus. I'm just walking from one street corner to another, having another coffee, another cigarette, another another, um, uh, you know, Turkish delight or, or lunch or dinner. And just drawing, and um, and I absolutely loved it. It was lonely, you know. It, when I when I think when I look through those sketchbooks, you know, I'm sure it's the same for you. When you look flip through your sketchbooks, you can remember a lot. Yeah, of, absolutely. Of, of everything that happened in that moment in time, the people you saw, and, and yeah, you know, I I do remember this place for its beauty and the people I met and the things I experienced. But I do also it does also bring up a sense of loneliness, you know, like traveling alone to draw. It's just you and your book, and yeah, it, it's definitely more enjoyable with people. But um, yeah, so that that was that was when it all changed for me. That was that was 
in those two weeks, I knew I'm like, I love this. I absolutely love doing this. I'm feeling comfortable at this. Um, people on Instagram are responding well, which, you know, I say, say what you want, say what, say what you want about Instagram, but, um, it is, it is good, you know, especially when you're sharing artwork, it is good for community building and also, um, getting, getting constructive feedback on your work. So, so it is, it is good. It is, it is great for that. I met a lot of, a lot of great people through that, through sharing work and, um, so yeah, I, I started identifying more as um, I, I still didn't really know about urban sketching, <laughs> like the community at large, mm-hmm. but uh, more of a person that life draws from from places. So so from there, yeah, I started to really plan my plan my trips around. Okay, I I know that I do not want to take vacations ever again for the rest of my life. Um, I don't want to go somewhere and just relax and sit on a beach. I need to. I need I need to as long as I can control it pair it with art. So try to go to play. I mean, er, you could argue that anywhere you go, there's something to draw, especially if you draw from life. So so that's that makes it easy. But uh, it is it does dictate who I go with and for how long and how much money I'm willing to spend on that trip. It is it is definitely paired with art. And um, so so fast forward a few years to uh, to the Palestine project. So. This one, this one came up in um, in an interesting way. So, so through my skateboard shop, we've got we've got a um, a local outreach program that uh, that we provide uh, used equipment and and skateboard lessons and uh, programming to underprivileged youth here in Ottawa. And through that, we've done work um, up in Iqaluit, up in uh, in 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 the Nunavut, in in the in the tundra of of Canada. And uh, just just being able to connect with kids uh, through skateboarding, like I was saying before, it's such an empowering tool. It's it's accessible. It's cheap. You can kind of do it anywhere where there's a smooth piece of ground. And affiliated with it is a culture of of artists, graphic designers, filmmakers, photographers, and a bunch of people who spent their entire lives failing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, you're you're learning kickflips, you're learning ollies, um, you're just failing over and over and over again, and you're comfortable with that, and and it builds it builds character and and a and a sense of ease when when approaching other other tasks in life. We're like, cool, failure is part of the process. Like, I'm not I'm not a stranger to this, even though I'm getting used to people cheering when I land a trick, and that's a nice feeling too. I'm also comfortable with the fact that nobody gives a shit if sorry, nobody cares <laughs> if um, if I don't make it. It's it's all part of the process, and everyone's in the same boat. So, so Palestine, uh, there, there's a, a UK Palestinian organization uh, called Skate Pal, and they do outreach programming in Palestine, in the West Bank, um, for kids at a as an after school program. So, essentially, they're in they're in Ramallah and and Asira as Shamalia. So, uh, one's a city and one's a, a small town. Um, they do after school programming at a at a schoolyard in Ramallah and at a skate park that was built by locals and volunteers. So yeah, Skate Pal is a UK Palestinian organization that does outreach programs for youth in the West Bank in uh, Palestine uh, through skateboarding. And how we got in touch with them was they um, they advertised on uh, on Thrasher magazine's uh, Instagram. So Thrasher's uh, an American um, skateboard magazine, and they did a cold call just to you know volunteer, come volunteer in Palestine, um, 
at a skateboard outreach program. So we thought that was really cool at our shop. And like, like I had mentioned, um, we have our own outreach programs here in Ottawa that, that we work with underprivileged youth giving, um, you know, giving, um, skate, skateboard lessons, mentorship and used equipment and programming. Obviously things have, um, fallen to the wayside because of the global pandemic, but hopefully we'll be allowed to, uh, to continue our services. But, uh, yeah, so that, that's something that we actually wanted to link, link up with them and do something a lot bigger where we were going to go with, uh, with a group of us from, from my skate shop, um, down to Palestine and, 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 you know, bring a lot of equipment with us because you can't, um, there's a blockade on the West bank and you can't ship stuff there. So that that's the hard part is volunteers have to bring as much equipment, skateboard equipment as, as they possibly can with them. And for me, um, I had to bring a bunch of skateboard trucks, which is the, uh, the metal, the metal axles that the wheels attach to the board with. And that's the heaviest thing you could possibly travel with. I had a duffel bag full of them, but um, anyway, so we wanted to go with a group, but one thing led to another and we just couldn't afford to go as a group. And um, I decided to go with, with, with one friend uh, that I worked in skateboard with uh, Noor Abusado. So she is, um, she is, Palestinian and had never never been to Palestine. She was born in Kuwait, and it was a chance, an opportunity for her to um, to go and visit, you know, visit her roots and uh, and give back. Now, the challenge with her, um, which was interesting, is that she didn't skateboard yet. So we had, uh, yeah, she 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 had a board and she was interested, and um, and the fun challenge there was was to get her ready. Um, you know, I, I make it sound like a Rocky movie. She she did all the work herself, but it was to get her ready enough to be comfortable enough to skate with people because it's less about teaching skateboarding and just more about being present and being with people. So there's much greater value in her as a as a Palestinian woman talking with people and sharing her story than there is me, some like white guy from Canada who happens to be able to kickflip, you know. So so she she brought much greater value to the table and I was I was her tag along. But, uh, but yeah, that was the focus of the trip. It was uh, it was a Monday to Friday, uh, three to seven after school program where we just met with kids, skated with them, um, shared stories, practiced English. And um, and yeah, we were just we were just there. It was very, very simple. Now, the the thing that made it a, interesting was it's a, a minimum one month um, volunteership. So because because the kids you know, people come and go. It's, it's like a vacation for volunteers and they, they don't get to establish like long and meaningful relationships um, with the kids there. At least in a month, you can get to know people a little bit better and, and share better than, you know, like a week or two. So, so yeah, we spent a month there. And, uh, you know, at this by this point in my life, I I had already decided that, you know, I pair my, my, my trips and traveling with sketching as well. So yeah, I did... Um, I did go with 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 the intention to just be sketching. Um, now to produce a book at the end of the trip, um, sure, that was on my mind. I mean, it, it has been on my mind for the last five years or so. I've I've wanted to create some kind of book um, out of the body of work, especially since I decided I love and like and I'm comfortable with drawing small and in sketchbooks now rather than making big imaginative pieces that go in a gallery, I, I actually just prefer the format of like the, the gonzo gonzo approach to, to making art. And um, so the best way to share that for me would be to actually put a collection into a book. So, so yeah, whether, whether, whether it was um, 
on my mind to create a book after Palestine or not is debatable because it's always kind of on the back of my mind. But um, at that at that point, I just wanted to capture as much as I possibly could, especially because it's such a beautiful and unique place. Um, lots of, yeah, you know, it, it's 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 one of the oldest places on earth um, as far as civilization goes. So. So, you know, architecturally, um, tonally, and also seeing, seeing the, the more modern built over top of the ancient, it's, it's just very interesting place. And yeah, the, the, the people are great. The, the, the food was fun to sketch. The people were fun to sketch, um, all of it. So, so yeah, like we, we, we had time until, until three in the afternoon every day to, to explore and, um, and discover, you know, what, what was, what was within our means to, to visit in Palestine, because yes, it is, it is a, it is an occupied, um, occupied place and, uh, travel was very difficult. There's a lot of military checkpoints, um, and, um, and, and highways cutting across highways, restricting travel. So, you know, somewhere where geographically it would take 45 minutes to drive took actually like four or five hours. So we were pretty limited to, to, how how many places we could go but um but we may do and um and yeah i just i ended up i ended up doing one or two sketches a day the whole time we were there the only day that i didn't sketch was uh, actually the first page of the book it opens with with the line i didn't sketch in hebron and that's just because that that place you know destroyed me emotionally it was it was kind of the 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 first and like most real experience that I had with the occupation and, and the two cultures living side by side and not, you know, not getting along. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into the geopolitics because I'm not, you know, qualified to to talk about that, but um, it was a really hard place for me to experience. And it, and it really took a lot out of me to see um, cages and, and fences separating two people that, that look the same, you know, and, um, and to see how the, how they treat one another. I guess uh, what I, uh, I want to ask you about the things that you saw in Palestine, but just before that, I want to uh, get back to the topic of skateboarding and just probe a little bit about how skateboarding helps uh, underprivileged children. So what's the idea behind this and uh, what are the benefits? Sure. I mean, skateboarding can help underprivileged or privileged kids the same way any sport really could it's it's not much different there the only the only real differences i see is that it is um a little more even though there's a big community around it and there's a lot of camaraderie and uh it is an individual activity and it requires very little commitment and um and i just find the more so than the, the physical act of skateboarding the the culture that surrounds it creatively is i think the most beautiful part um to share with with kids like you know skate pe- you know people say skateboarding saved my life stuff like that for me it changed my life or at least made my life go down the path that it's gone down um you know i i got to travel a lot because of skateboarding um you know going to going to different cities that we knew the architecture had places to skateboard that were were better or more advanced or more interesting than our own um you know creating skateboard graphics on on boards on t-shirts um skateboard videos you know learning about cinematography and cutting and editing and directing and and you know creating title graphics photography magazine zines like there's there's just so much around it 
um, yeah, that there's just so much, so much more to it than just, you know, kickflips. And, and that's, that's what I like to share with people. It's not a, not about getting good at skateboarding. It's just like, let me introduce you to something that, that changed my life and, and all of my friends' lives. And maybe, maybe it'll, it'll help you out and, and have a similar impact or not. And, and what's nice about it is, yeah, you don't need a team. You don't, you know, it's, it's helpful to have a skate park, have a facility or like a, a field you could call it, but uh, you don't need it. All you need is a parking lot, you know, um, or a street. We all grew up skateboarding, you know, in our apartment building complex parking lots, you know, trying to avoid cars and stuff. And, uh, and that's all it took to get creative. Once again, it's your, your, your limitations are, are your best, um, best tool for creativity. It's like, what can you do with this rolling piece of wood and this, uh, the line, the yellow line on the road, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what can you do over that line on that line with that line against that line you know um, yeah end up with yeah. some of it in your knees <laughs> but, and that and that and that's just why i like i like doing that and i think that's also why you know skate pile exists it, it just because of going back to what we were saying in the beginning because of how difficult skateboarding is it becomes incredibly rewarding and once it gets you it holds on to you for a very long time and doesn't let go until your cartilage gives out <laughs> you know, it, it's it's a very obsessive thing to to fail that much and still be interested in something right yeah mm-hmm. that's such a good point and i i keep thinking about the way that it invites people to interact with their city and to see uh things that in a new light like a, a, a railing at a on a staircase is not just for people to rest on when they're descending or ascending the staircase but now it's a feature for a skateboarder so i like uh, that kind of repurposing and reimagining what the urban environment is all about um now in your book you also mention some interesting observations and the traditional word for it is culture shock but i think of it more as a culture revelation in your case mm-hmm. and the kind of things you saw and i'm curious about how it manifests when you're so uh, let me preamble it a little bit um when i was studying in the netherlands one of my colleagues was completing his phd program and they have this thing they do in the university that the first page of your phd thesis has 10 declarations you make and these declarations are explicitly supposed to be not about your field of work they can be about life they can be about pop anything pop culture anything else you've read but you just make 10 statements that you believe to be true which have nothing to do specifically with your research and you kind of can be asked to defend that as well during your phd dissertation uh, defense in front of a committee and one of his uh, i this has stuck with me and reading your book it i was reminded of it he said that uh, people in southern warmer countries compared to the netherlands so in warmer climates are nicer in general because warm climates invite us to spend time around and interact with strangers without being in a bad mood and in cold climates usually your time spent outdoors is getting from point a to point b so you don't have so much patience with people with people in your vicinity or people you don't know but they're just they're just part of the city you live in so I was thinking about this when you spoke about the the culture that you witnessed, the way people would interact with cigarette shops and tea stalls in in the streets in in the various parts of Palestine. So 
with this in mind can you tell me uh, share some of these revelations for you coming from canada and being in in this completely foreign world what were some of these things you noticed that was socially very different and distinct and what would what did you attribute them to yeah that that's that's very interesting that you was, that you would say that how it's um connected to the climate and i never i never thought of that but yeah it makes sense because i always wonder i'm like okay when i go travel people are like inviting me places and spending spending whole days or whole weeks with me and like when someone comes into ottawa they're like hey i'm from such and such like oh cool hi bye uh, and i'm like what what makes our culture so different what what makes it like we we because we travel quite a bit like our group around the skate shop we try to make a very conscious effort to whenever there's an, a visitor to accommodate and take them around and, and give give them what people give us. But uh, it is not like, it's not second nature in, in Canada. And yeah, and that's, I mean, it, it's, it's almost like that as soon as you leave the West, really, when you leave the, the colonial powers, you, 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 you tend to find people with a little more, more culture and more, more civilization and a more social way of life you know like we just we just live in a in a rat race of of capitalism and trying to work till you're dead and and consuming and acquiring and yeah all all that all that nasty stuff and i find uh, when traveling it it kind of opens opens your eyes to places where it's okay to spend two hours in the morning, just sitting and talking to someone, whether it's about politics or your family or, or whatever, what you did last night, it's, 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 and, you know, Palestine was no different. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that that was unique to Palestine. It's just unique to not being in Canada to have, Mm -hmm. um, you know, people, just so so warm and open and inviting and wanting to tell their story i mean what what makes palestine unique i guess is because people have a story that the rest of the world has decided to forget about and stop listening to and you know when when a when a foreigner happens to be there there wasn't very many that 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 we came across they want to tell you their story and their and their stories are are quite horrific uh, for the most part everything everything starts you know that that's something that i mentioned in the book is is for me the the big takeaway was contrast right and linking that to linking that to the to the um observed observed and documented art and the stories that the people had to tell everything started great warm come in have some coffee have some tea oh this is this is what i do this is what my kids do this is what my husband does what do you do this is great and then eventually every single person you talk to has a very horrific and disturbing and dark story about living in an in an occupied in an occupied space so you know um relatives being being kidnapped and deported um homes being invaded being being stopped at at gunpoints um to show paperwork all the time military checkpoints like i said i don't want to get into geopolitics or my opinions but these are my observations while there um life life was not meant to be comfortable um for palestinians and by design and um yet uh, uh, all that all that considered everybody's warm everybody's inviting like i had a pretty you know i had a pretty twisted view or a pretty ignorant view of what it was going to be like going there and and i'm I'm not going to lie as a westerner i was i was a little afraid to go and apprehensive in the beginning because um 
you know, you, you see how the media portrays the Middle East here, here in North America. And it's, 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 it's completely insane. You know, I mean, we have, we have our own agenda of, of how we want to portray that part of the world in order to dehumanize and, and whatever, take, take whatever resources people want to take. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the history of colonizers and, um, and yeah, it's, it's a very different world when you're there. And, um, yeah, like I had a friend tell me when I was when I was posting stuff to Instagram, you know, like one of the first nights I got there, uh, our friend Aram was was driving us, you know, in his Mazda three showing us around town playing playing like hip hop and just seeing all the lights in the cities and stuff. And he my, my buddy back in Ottawa messaged me that night. He's like, dude, he's like, I feel like a complete idiot. Like I that is not the world I pictured that you were going into. And he's like, I my world just got turned upside down and I realized I need to. I need to to brush up a little bit more on on my my geography. And and that's that's just that's just what it is, right? When you travel and and a lot of times you realize when you go places and meet people and talk to people what you would like to bring back with you and also what you have that you should appreciate more. You know, like I remember one of the first times like when I left on that 7th month journey, I was like I hate Canada, I hate Ottawa. I don't want to work on Canadian cartoons. I want to go live somewhere somewhere fun, exotic and exciting. And then I realized um after a 7 month tour of, of a pretty small part of the world, but pretty significant for me, I was like, "You know what? My life is great. <laughs> life in Ottawa is 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 nice. It's easy, a lot of opportunities." Um and a lot of these places that I went that I would have given everything for to live in, it was it was the same story and contrast about me. They're like, I would give everything I have to go where you are. You know, like we all picture retiring on a beach somewhere in a little surf shack. But, you know, the people living in that surf shack on that beach also dream of having an iPhone and I don't know, driving right. through square. I don't know. That's a t- terrible analogy, but... <laughs> no, but I, I completely understand. Um, so I'm I'm also thinking about uh, these little things like uh, the kind of interactions you have and the kind of conversations you get into simply being in the vicinity of people. And you rightly said that it's not just a Palestine thing. It's a, a large part of the world that's this way. For example, I come from the city of Calcutta or Kolkata in India. And we have this thing that you sit down at a place and you just talk to people. And it's a cultural phenomenon of the city that people talk to strangers on the bus without ever turning around to look at them, but just just talking into the air and talking to each other without ever learning each other's names or even making eye contact. But entire conversations I've, I've been privy to have happened this way. And so I was I was just thinking about uh, the tea stalls and the the cigarette shops that you were at and these little things that you learned along the way. So um, you you mentioned that trying to make sense of urban chaos was a drawing goal for you, like you wanted to do that in Istanbul, and that's one of my favorite cities. And my deepest regret that I visited there before I was an urban sketcher, so I didn't draw anything. Yeah. Uh, but similarly in Palestine, uh, just making sense of urban chaos mm-hmm. and avoiding squads of uh, Facebook squads, like you mentioned in your book, uh, squads of people who want to take pictures of you or want to take pictures of what you're doing and thus completely interrupt the flow. How did how did you negotiate with this? Like there is the appeal of drawing urban chaos, but the complete downsides as well. Yeah, the there's it's it's it doesn't 
it's not without its um, challenges for sure being immersed in a in a bustling urban center no um yeah so like there, there was a lot of factors so like one thing was um the the stone that was used to for architecture in palestine made everything look relatively the same color so you know when, when you look through the book you'll notice you know i've got like ochres ochres as as the base wash and um and like ultramarine blue and like some lavender as as um as shadows and that's just because everything did kind of look the same so you're very dependent on subject matter and light to to compose to compose shots so so i'm talking like i'm i'm at work to compose to compose stories and images Mm -hmm. and uh and yeah like capturing people it's it's an it's an acquired skill right and um and for me you know i spent the majority of time i spent um was in nablus that was the closest city to asira ashamalia where we were staying and that was uh you know a 15 minute 15 minute taxi drive away so we would go there in the mornings and it was also the place that was uh, a taxi connecting hub to go to other cities so a lot of a lot of time was spent in in nablus and sometimes i would go there an hour or two earlier um, and wait for the other uh, volunteers that we were with before we would go on a day trip and, you know, spend an hour or two sketching. But uh, yeah, I got kind of comfortable in that place. And also it re- helped very much that uh, my friend Nora was with me because I, c- I couldn't speak Arabic and, and she's fluent and she w- <laughs> she would get stuck in conversations while I would <laughs> kind of go unnoticed and, and continue sketching. So, I, you know, I, I owe her big time for that one. And um and yeah, like like I like I described in the book, you know, the, it wasn't really like a tactic. It was more of a comedic page where I describe like, um, you know, sketching, sketching the chaos in 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 Nablus. But uh, I did find that a, a, a several times, I would sit down and just have a coffee, you know, and and just strike up with the very limited um, English and Arabic combination between myself and someone I'd be sitting with. There was mostly pointing. Um, just a, a, a general conversation, a hello, some courtesy. And, and you know, I, I would tell people that I was um, an architecture student or an art student. That that was usually the easiest, not because I'm lying or trying to hide anything, but it was the easiest way to communicate what was about to happen next, which is me pulling out a sketchbook and some paints and starting to draw. Because, you know, trying to explain animation and, and, and Disney or like Pinocchio, um, you know, with your hands, it's, it's just too much. I'm like, student. Everyone, everyone knows it's, it's an international word student. And then when you pick out your drawing, you're like, Oh, student art, draw. Cool. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and then, and then I found, you know, in, in, in those, in those instances, the, the person that I had made established that connection or relationship with when other people would then be drawn to, you know, this foreigner sketching, um, he would kind of be like, shoo, like, don't talk to him. Yeah. Kind of like pr- protect me in a, in a sense. And that was, right. that was, that was really nice. And um, yeah, so that, that was kind of, I, I tried to, you know, make a comedic spin on it, like the, the, the tactical guide to, to sketching in Nablus. Right, right. So true. Um, it, it, did you notice any kind of difference in, say, drawing people um, in Palestine or anywhere in the East versus drawing people in Canada? Is there, is there like some kind of different notion of personal space maybe or any kind of like I, I I noticed an excerpt in your book is also about how you felt comfortable drawing somebody after you'd already visited them a couple of times before. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I don't know if that, that would be unique to Palestine, but, um, you know, getting, getting in someone's space and sketching them is weird. Like, mm. you know, I mean, you, your, your whole identity, the sneaky art, right. <laughs> yeah. you, you describe it so well. It's, you have to be sneaky about it because yeah, you don't, you make people so uncomfortable and then explaining what you're doing. And it's just, you want to, it's, you're being selfish with your time. You're not trying to make it about the person you're drawing. You want to just get your drawing and move on. So mm-hmm. for the most part, we're sneaky, but there's certain, certain situations, uh, especially like, like there's, there's a sketch that I have of a seamstress um, working on some clothing. And then another one of, of two guys making zalabia, like a, a fried, a fried dough pastry. Those two, I was like, right, right in there with those people. And I hadn't really done that before. I've never really um, asked someone if I could sketch them and then sketch them. I'm like, Hey, that's so much pressure because as you and I were talking about before is like our, our sketching is about getting loose and, and making mistakes and all that. And you're like, no matter what the person is going to want to see it, take some right. pictures with it. You're like, there, there's a lot riding on this drawing, especially <laughs> drawing women. Um, I find, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to make, make this go down like a, a sexism remark or anything like that. But I, I tend to find in my experience, um, the way that I draw in caricature, um, women dislike when I, when I portray them more than, more than men, you know, I do, I do misshape people, exaggerate, um, key features like noses and ears and, and posture. And, uh, and yeah, if, um, if my family members can attest who ask me to draw them sometimes, and then I do, and they yell at me, I try to avoid (laughs) it. So, but yeah, it's, um, you know, the guys, the guys making the Zalabia, I, we had visited them two times previously and and other friends were in there like i had another friend that was with us who was working on a cookbook a palestinian cookbook with local family family passed on recipes and that one's available and out it's called sahten it's it's um it's available on the uh, skatepal website beautiful book but uh, he had already established that we're kind of weird and and doing media right so so when I came back again, I asked uh, my friend Noor if, if she could ask them if I could sketch them while they work. And they were super into it. And, and that was fun. And then um, and then the seamstress, I mean, the seamstress I describe in the book, that that was a page where, you know, I've only got five pages of literature in that in that book. So I was very, um, very selective about the stories that I wanted to include because it was more about you making connections with the art and making your own stories. But yeah, that one was a very special one to me because I was... I was like out of out of body experience of discomfort and <laughs> just <laughs> surviving it. You know, it's uh, being invited, being invited to someone where what you thought was someone's home for coffee, turning out to be where they work at their workday, being brought in. The boss is there. All, all the women are are making clothes. Um, you know, our, our, our friends that were there were chatting with them. And I'm like, well, I would love to get a sketch here, but I am like, <laughs> I feel so uncomfortable <laughs> asking and. Then yeah, the drawing is gonna have to gonna have to be survivable. So that's that's absolutely true. It very very real concerns. So like you mentioned, I'm sneaky for that reason that it. I don't think people will mind what I'm doing because I don't try to. I don't try. To, I never draw somebody sitting right in front of me. I draw somebody who's at least twenty feet away and preferably busy and doing something. That's the reason why I want to draw them, so they don't notice me, and I prefer it for their sake as well as mine like I don't want to interrupt their day or make them feel awkward and secondly I don't want to go through the business of introducing myself and what I'm doing and blah yeah, blah blah especially, it's, especially if you 
mess up that drawing. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. and the chances of messing it up increase if I know that I'm going to show it to them. Like yeah. that, that that pressure manifests very clearly. And be very but, careful about the proportions you exaggerate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and those not being careful about it is actually the right way to do is the better way to do it so the more careful i get the worse my drawings get and it's this unfortunate loop that when i need to be uh, so this manifests and when i do commissions i just accepted one which is a little bit outside my comfort zone and not the kind of thing that i prefer to draw and i know that to do it well i'll have to ignore the person i'm doing it for and i'll have to almost think um uh, just to psych myself up you know it's not that i have any and like they're, they're my patrons i don't have animosity towards them but just to psych myself up to do the best job for them i'll have to completely ignore them if you figure out how to do that let me know because <laughs> I, i'm i'm in there with you i i i hate commissions and i always tell people asking for commissions why i'm like look it's not that your subject matter is is something I don't want to do, but exactly what you said now, you're like, I, it's not going to come out like what you want because I'm going to be thinking about you and your reaction and how important it is to you. And it's not going to be the sketch that you imagine like, no, but that's fine. I want that. You're like, it doesn't matter what you want. It's gonna, it's gonna turn out different because I, because I, there's a lot of pressure riding on it and I'm going to be sweating the whole time and I might do it (laughs) three times before you get it. And yeah, it's just commissions are like, an emotional roller coaster that I I try to avoid because I already am on that ride at my day job. Right. Yeah, exactly. So true. Yeah. So uh, that's what makes me very curious about this book because this book comes as a, as a packaged product of the things you want to say and the things you wanted to draw. And also kind of why I asked that question of whether you had the book in mind when you uh, went, uh, when you started on your trip, because it it might play in certain in ways, but there are ways that we kind of delude ourselves or we distract ourselves from this fact just simply because you do your sketchbook work for yourself. If you paint in a sketchbook over time, it's actually not over time. It will be fairly quickly that you'll forget the fact that this might need to be something for someone else. And it becomes clearly about you and therefore it becomes your best work, which is great for giving it to someone else. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. And like I was saying before, the the prospect of m- turning a sketchbook into a publication is something that I've been thinking about for a while. So it's just in the back of my mind while I'm working anyways, being like, it would be cool if, but not the goal. And that's what takes the edge off. I was like, yeah, it would be awesome to come back and like put together like a, a small zine. Like I, I, did, I did not imagine that I was going to sketch as much as I did, to be honest, because of the nature of that kind of trip and the amount of people involved and the fact that I had had an actual um, job to do while there. I was like, if I get, you know, five or six sketches out of this trip, that's going to be that's going to be awesome, because that's usually what I set myself up for anyways, mm-hmm. as far as that mm-hmm. goal or expectation. And anything beyond that is bonus. And uh, but as as you know, halfway through the trip, I was like, oh, well, we're this is this is almost doable. It's like the right kind of conditions to be to be collecting a large body of work that because it's done one day after another has a shared tone and mood and and consistency. And uh, yeah, so it just kind of started to come together. But the, but making a book it was not was not the pressure because if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's not like there's a publisher right. waiting for a for a book, right? 
it's it's if it works out i'll i'll put something out and and share it share it with the world and if not then next time and that's kind of like the 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 trip i took before this uh several years ago i did a i did a a motorcycle trip across the Rockies in, in Colorado and Utah by myself. And, and while I was on that trip, I was like, Oh, this would be cool to turn it into a book. But when I, when I came back, I was like, there's a lot missing here there. It's inconsistent. I was experimenting a little bit too much to like have a, a consistent voice to put together a book. There's no people. I didn't have enough people. Um, I just wasn't in a place artistically where I was comfortable in putting together a, a narrative, you know, but, but yeah, Holstein, like those, those failures in the back of my, like you were saying, you build a library, right. And, and knowing that I needed to focus more on people and less on just like architecture, because it is nice, but like, you know, in urban sketching, that that's one thing that, that, that a lot of the times is missing. You have people that do only, only people and characters. And then you have people that do empty, empty places with just buildings. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those people um, that did empty, empty streets. You know, sometimes there would be a car, but I'm like, what? These places are like d- devoid of life. And, um, and, and yeah, for me, it's, it's the people that pass through the scene that some get included and some don't based on the story and the composition you're trying to tell that, I, that I find adds, adds life to it, you know? And um, so I did, I definitely made an effort to focus more on people in this trip, but still do, do what it is that I love to do and creates, create spaces and focus on, on, on the urban environment, but, but make sure that there's, yeah, there's a good balance of, of real yeah. life, you know, not just the buildings. That were once. I feel like you can't, you can't draw outside. Uh, well, it's kind of crass to make the West East divide again, but outside of quote unquote, Western places, I feel like you it just would not do any justice to draw a place without people in it because it does people not make everywhere. sense. Yeah, the, the people are everywhere. They're they're sitting yeah. on everything and enjoying everything. There's food outside. Yeah, like yeah, I, I could go outside right now. It's 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 two PM on, on a Friday in Ottawa and I could go down some some streets where you would not see a single person outside. Right. Exactly true. So I say this quite often on my podcast, actually. I say that uh, a city is interesting to me because of the way that people use these public structures that we make. And the usage of these structures it w- is what gives them meaning because there's no other reason that they exist. So in these old cities, in these old parts of the world, what really fascinates me, and this is so true in India, is how the old and the new live together in this continuous usage. So people are aware of the history they have that respect for a historical monument but it's not preserved behind glass it's still subject to wear and tear to daily usage and it's still subject to adaptive usage so a 300 year old building is being used a certain way today that maybe is not the best in terms of the idea of historical preservation or conservation acts but it's the it's the most organic thing in the world because this is how these people who whose place this is are using it and it has a meaning today in their world and that flexible meaning over time is really interesting to me yeah and how how do you conserve everything right it will run out of space <laughs> right yeah you use anything that's historic it's uh, i love that i love seeing uh, an old historic building being repurposed, like where the facade is kept or a wall inside is kept, you know, like keep, keep what you can of it and add, add the modern and, and the efficient to it. And, 
and then yeah like you said you still have a, a reverence and a and a visible part of the history but you didn't take this space away from people and turn it into something that you pay to pay to see exactly right and i find this is like a difference in attitudes towards history of whether history is something that is removed from our present so therefore it can be put in a museum it can be put behind glass and it can be studied in a you know with plaques uh, to explain where it when it belongs to and what it is versus history that is a part of us that is everyday a part of our lives and therefore it occupies a place subject to the same pollution and the the friction and all the all the forces in play today as opposed to back then anyway my question uh, that i'm thinking about now is so in putting together a book you take a lot of creative decisions so i did that with my book uh, sneaky art of oakler i it was the first time i was putting together a book of art and i was self publishing it so i had the liberty and the responsibility at the same time to take creative decisions and then to see how they would pan out so i took very conscious decisions my deci- one of my decisions was that i would have very few words in it and only the i have four chapters for four seasons and only those and the introduction part would have words everything else would be just pages of art because i wanted to see if i can sell just my art if that works as a product with people it will tell me more about myself and what i'm doing um so what was uh, i in your book you have a lot of media more than i had in mind so you have you have polaroid pictures you have drawings you have paintings and you have charcoal sketches and impressions and then you have a few words here and there and you also have scans of some travel memorabilia so what uh, what were these creative decisions you took how many of them were very intentional ways to design a book for you and how do you feel they panned out now that the book is out so that, that so that's interesting um because so i didn't take any design liberties with the actual media of the book so like you mentioned the polaroids um and the the collaging of of you know receipts and bus tickets and uh postcards and stuff like that that's all stuff that's exists in the sketchbook so so this whole project is a is a scale re- reproduction scanned as is of my actual sketchbook from palestine oh i see so, so i carry i bring a polaroid so i bring double sided tape with me very important so that whatever stuff i find i can i can paste in draw over and incorporate into my compositions and uh and and i also bring a uh like a little fuji instamax uh camera around with me and i find it just it just makes the the page less about the art and more about the context of travel journaling and uh, and i find you know like a polaroid for example i'm very selective of what i shoot and it's usually stuff that i didn't get a chance to draw or adds to the drawing it's not necessarily uh here's my drawing of the place and then here's a picture of the place you know like for example the seamstress in janine i i took a and the thing is with this fuji fuji camera is like you're kind of, it's on film and you're kind of stuck with what you get so a lot of the pictures are a little underexposed or overexposed but i took a, a close up of her hands because that's something that that i didn't really get to focus on in there and that that's something that i thought was missing in in the drawing and that that adds to it and um and then yeah things like receipts and postcards and and stuff like that is just things i collected and and pasted in along the way so 
so yeah, not, none of the book is edited. And I actually, one, one regret that, well, not necessarily a regret, but a, an observation that I may, that I will take into consideration in my, in my library uh, next time I'm, I'm traveling and drawing is um, people were, gave me feedback that it would have been nice to be able to read some of the pencil <laughs> descriptions <laughs> that I had of the pages. They're like, yeah, I couldn't read your writing. I'm like, yeah, good point. I'm like, I'd, to me, I'm like, you don't need to read the writing, but it's about the drawing. But um, I did write down where I was and when I drew the picture. So it's all in chronological order. And the book goes from from um, September 1st to October 1st, or, or sorry, October 1st to, to the end of October. Um, and and yeah, so, so as far as like the way that the media is displayed, I, I was debating, the, the big debate I had was, um, how much photography to include and how much of a narrative to include. Because I thought what, what I originally wanted to do was do a drawing and then a sp- uh, spread of photos. Drawing, spread of photos. And make the book a lot thicker, thinner, thinner paper in that, re- in that, in that regard. So it makes it cheaper and just more interesting. But um, I, I focus tested that idea with a couple of friends that I, that I hold their opinions very, very dearly. And uh, they all said, no, like, I want to see, I want to see your book as is like, don't, don't add anything to it. Don't manipulate anything. Don't cut stuff out. Just, I want to see, I want to, I want to experience it the way you did. I'm like, okay, well, that makes my life a lot easier because I'm just going to scan it, uh, put the pages together and, you know, clean up, clean it up as much as I can, as far as like having like dust and fingerprints and stuff like that. But for the most part, nothing is, um, nothing is um, manipulated or edited or taken out. And, and to the best of my abilities, this is a really hard thing to do. No artwork was altered or, or changed either, you know, like adding a highlight here and there. I'm just like, Nope. Um, keep it, keep it is keep it honest. And, uh, and that's, and that's what it is. Even, you know, some of the drawings in there, I questioned putting in, but I'm like, well, it's, it's part of it. Whether I, whether I think is good or not is, is subjective. And, um, right it's not a day yeah like i said the only the only day missing was uh was the day spent in hebron mm-hmm. yeah that's that's quite interesting it firstly it makes it so much more uh achievable as a product if you don't have to think about editing and post processing afterwards if it is what it is and the fact that it's very uh encouraging to know that there is a market for exactly this. So this kind of ties back to what I asked you very early in our conversation about how uh, there was this once when things were really exciting for us that special effects were possible and animation could be realistic. There was this drive towards making it as impressive as possible. But now there's almost a counter movement towards making it obvious that it's not the best animation or you know kind of explains the love for Laika also and in terms of Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs doubling down on the fact that this is stop motion and it's not supposed to look seamless so the idea that even a book or a a product of art does not need to you know you don't have to clean out the you don't have to polish the rough edges it can have signs of wear and tear in the final product is a very interesting and empowering idea for independent creators, I think. Yeah, and it, it's like I I personally am drawn to that stuff, so that's why I do it. It's um, I love like the Ralph Steadman, Ralph Steadman, um, you know, uh, Hell's Angels um, time period where where 
where he and he and Hunter just Im- immerse themselves in this like Gonzo yeah. and just a fantastic book is and 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 even even when you look at like art of books from from films and and animations it's it's the oh this is how it started and these are the sketches that you did that then led to and everyone has the same reaction i mean whether it, whether it's i mean my opinion is biased because i work in the industry and we are all nerds about <laughs> what it is that we're drawn to because of working in it but the final product is never as as interesting to me what you see on screen as as the work that went into it i'm like you know when you look at what look at the art of books and you see the concept art and you know napkin sketches like why why didn't you just make it look like that and that's actually something that uh that nelson lowry was circling back to him um i read in the in the paranorman art of book he talks about that where he decided to art direct the film to look like those drawings he's like i'm tired of you know, he, he, he writes about it. He's like, I'm tired of, of having that discussion of like why the final product doesn't look as cool as the art that went into it. He's like, let's misshape the buildings and lopside the trees and twist the character's nose and lopside the, you know, a, a, asymmetry, the ears and make it look like those sketches and, you know, still render it, light it, um, you know, tell the story. But, uh, like that, that movie is so charming. Um, Paranorman, like every, yeah. every little detail in that film just, just, yeah. Like pierces, pierces me deep looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I also really, really enjoyed Kubo and the two strings yeah. for the kinds of uh, play that they did, especially around nature and the waves and the storms on, on the sea. Yeah. It was, it was like very origami um, influenced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was beautiful. Yeah. So, uh, Coming back from Palestine to Ottawa now, um, I noticed uh, the, these winter sketches that you did, and you've done some uh, a, a bunch of paintings on coffee cups, mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting to me what this sort of suggests. Firstly, there's this idea that art needs to be of things that are already, you know, there's this notion that things need to be worthy of being drawn, and common things, ordinary sites don't become subjects of art so much. But what I really like about urban sketching is that it invites us to appreciate these things which are very ordinary, very everyday moments. And the idea, the the, the job is to find the beauty in those things. Because how how often are you going to keep drawing the same iconic look? It gets it gets boring, the challenges in there. The joy comes from these things that people don't consider as subjects of art. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about this decision to draw Ottawa in the winter, where it came from? How did you think about doing it in the way that you did it? Sure. Yeah. So drawing on coffee cups. So yeah, that was, that was back in 2019. So this was, uh, this was, I, I fit, I wrapped this project up right before I went to Palestine. So this, this is what I spent the, the, the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019 winter in Ottawa doing. So we have, we have absolutely brutal, devastating cold winters here in Ottawa, where you know some of your closest relatives you don't see until until the spring, <laughs> and, um, and uh, yeah, like I've always been drawn to winter scenes, um, in especially like as an animator and a designer in animation. It's it's just something beautiful about very deliberate and direct focal points. It's the only thing on the screen, you know, especially on like a snowy, overcast day. You've got a a big 
overexposed blown out ground overexposed sky little snowflakes and like this little little colorful weird character or like a tree stump or or grass blades sticking out of the grass there's there's just something yeah like there's a very um negative space driven look to winterscapes and and i absolutely love that and um so i decided to try and ca- capture some of that. I mean, and whether it comes across or doesn't um, really depended on what the subject matter was and how much snow was around. But but I, I started actually, before even deciding to do this project in the winter, I started drawing on coffee cups as a means to to simply market the fact that uh, we sell coffee at my skate shop. So, you know, I wanted to take this um, Los Angeles sort of like hipster-based approach to the skate shop where it's it's a skate shop and a cafe, you know, like, like you go through LA and there's always like a something and a bar, a something and a cafe. And, and it's less about just the coffee and more about a space being shared by, by social loitering and consumerism and, and whatever, you know, whatever you want to attribute a, a, a retail store to, but I just like the, the, the loitering and the, community and culture aspect to it that, that you know like we were talking before that's like something i bring back from my my traveling which is i want people to enjoy a space differently like when you first walk into this the the shop the first thing you see when you open the door is not what's for sale it's where can you sit you know and, and that that is my way of telling people or our way of telling people our priorities our priorities are our community and people and then buying stuff in order to have the things you need available and staying this place so anyways yeah long story short we we sell um coffee to go on in in paper cups and uh it was just like a fun fun way for me to incorporate some of my art to help push and market um the fact that we sell coffee so i would just like finish a coffee and where i happen to be sketch a little scene and take a photograph of it and just say hey come get your coffee tomorrow morning whatever and eventually I started collect. I started a little collection at the store because I would always drop them off ever after. And then I saw how people were kind of responding to it and, and, and gravitating towards it and asking if they could buy one, if they could have one. So I'm like, oh, there's, there's, there's something here. I'm going to kind of keep doing this. And, um, and then actually a, a friend of ours um, approached me about doing uh, a small cup show at a, at a hotel here in Ottawa. And you know, we were talking about what that would look like. And and to be honest, I, I didn't want to just do something small and have a couple things on display. I guess, I guess it's in my nature to always want to overproduce a project. Like, okay, like a couple cups here and there. It's, it's just like, it's like the Georgia O'Keeffe saying, it's like, you either make art that's really, really big or really, really small. There's nothing in between. And for me, like a couple of small cups just meant nothing. I'm like, what would make this small work stand out would be a lot of them like an entire wall of them i'm like yeah why don't we make a a hundred of them the goal and then we'll also have paintings and i'm like yeah of course i I don't have a full-time job let's just let's just (laughs) spend a whole year painting and uh and and as we were going through the logistics of it i realized that because of the fact that it was in a hotel and it was only going to be available to look at as an event for one night i'm like you know what the amount of work going into this for the return on it is um, is just too much. Like I, I think I I would rather now that that this is moving and has momentum have it somewhere where it can be available for people to experience and look at for for at least a month, you know. And uh, and yeah, so 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 
in in that case, I, I hooked up with a local restaurant um, that's owned by a, a pair of friends at a Citizen Restaurant, and they they you know gave me a, gave me the entire space to to fill by the when I was done. And so yeah, I had a goal then by spring to uh, to do a hundred cups, and that meant um, that meant one drawing every morning on my way to work, and then uh, at least four or five on the weekends. <laughs> math on that i'm like okay i'm gonna be in like yeah like my 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 friends would call me in the morning he's like hey you want to go grab a coffee i'm like dude i can't i'm I'm drawing a cup i'm like i'm like 20 behind and <laughs> i'm like missing my quarter this week so so yeah it, it ended up being um a project you know when you have when you when you plan and have a goal it's a lot easier to 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 reach that and uh yeah i would just i would just stop and sketch whatever whatever caught my eye whether it was interesting or uninteresting um on my way on my way to work every morning um the scenes that aren't snowing uh, for the most part i was able to do outside and then run into my car to do the uh, watercolor wash because um that stuff was not drying outside <laughs> yeah and uh and the scenes that have actual snow i would just do do from my car because um yeah ink wet ink and wet watercolor are not um don't get along very well with flurries and uh, snowfall. Yeah, good point. Uh, I, I I liked what you said about uh, your skate skate shop slash cafe, uh, the community aspect of social loitering, as you put it. One of my favorite cafes in the town that I made my book, uh, Eau Claire in Wisconsin. That's it's it goes by cafe and cyclery because it is also a bicycle repair shop. And you get to watch them do it. You get to sit on a counter and the the repair work is going on in front of you. And sometimes they were the subject of my drawings when I needed a coffee and there was nothing else to look at. I would draw their tools or I would draw them working on the things they were doing. I love that. The concept of so there's this community aspect to social loitering also. And it's I love how. It's it's a very it's again going back to that term. It's such an Eastern idea, and I had it in what is technically the West, but culturally qualifies as the East. I was in Morocco. It happens in India all the time, but I was in Morocco, and I remember how they love to haggle, and they really love if you also love to haggle. So a lot of shop owners were delighted by the fact that I was Indian because that means that you know how to haggle. You know how this game is played. So they would, their faces would light up. They would start telling me about their favorite Bollywood movies and their favorite Bollywood heroes. And they would sit me down and they would get some tea immediately so that we could begin the haggle. And they were so happy to be able to do it because they had a lot of uh, white tourists who would simply pay what they were asked to pay and then go. Because the, the translation of the money, of course, is always in their favor. It's such a weak currency but these guys while they were making inflated sales weren't getting the joy of making that sale without a good without a good back and forth emotional and a bit of no i don't want it anymore so we actually uh, it kind of resonates with your story about the seamstress uh, in your book uh, we had this experience where my friend was buying a shisha and he uh, we were invited to haggle we were given uh, drinks and uh, some sweets and we talked for like 45 minutes and he was haggling over what was effectively one euro and in the end he refused to buy it and I just looked at him that we spent 45 minutes over one euro you're not going to buy this and we left the shop we left the shop we actually left and the man was angry at us 
for not uh, coming down to his price. And as we walked maybe 10 feet away and then his wife came running out and she said that, okay, my husband runs the shop, but it's my shop. So I'll give it to you for that lesser price of just one euro. <laughs> and it was so simple. So we came back to the house and then the husband was sullenly wrapping it up for us and giving us glares and he handed it to us in the end. And it reminded me so much of your experience with the seamstress who invited you and who made finally the difference maker that led to you visiting their house after being invited by the man and politely turning him down. <laughs> That's funny. So you guys didn't give the extra euro in the end? To just... We didn't give the, he didn't give yeah. the extra euro. <laughs> he was quite determined to not do it. It was, he really enjoyed it. Like I would have just given the euro. I think, I think I don't have, that instinct as strongly in me as it needs to be. It's oh, very anti-Indian of me, but I would have ended up giving that extra euro. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not built for haggling. I mean, you get you get used to it. You know, like for me, Indonesia was a good warm up for India, and India, India, India was probably like my biggest cultural um, experience of my life. You know, like that. I remember the last week I was there. I was like, I need to be in an incubator after this where no, but there's no people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, which, for, which part of the country were you in? Um, I, I, so I, I landed in, um, which is, um, sorry, I'm, I have like Palestinian cities, um, Chennai where, uh, Royal Land. So we landed in Chennai. So, so this is the, this is the ignorance that I travel with. <laughs> so not, not so much anymore, but as, as a, as, as a, in my twenties. So my friend Mark and I, um, found out that Chennai has a Royal Enfield factory. That's where they're manufactured. So we're like, cool, we'll go to Chennai and we'll like find a used Royal Enfield and go. It's like, it's like going to like Japan and being like, well, they make Toyotas there. So like, we'll find a cheap one. It's like the stupidest, stupidest thing you can imagine. So we got to Chennai and realized the, the India loves bureaucracy. There's just so much paperwork and bureaucracy in, in a place that seems like it has no laws. <laughs> we're like getting getting a motorcycle and registering a motorcycle is just not happening so uh -huh. anyways I, I won't get into that part but yeah um Chennai, <laughs> we ended up uh going into Mysore where we had a friend who was there on a yoga retreat who put us in touch with a man who had some bikes so we were able to find some bikes then we traveled um across across um east to west to uh we were trying to make it to Goa but we made it to uh Gokarna because uh, my buddy's bike broke down and then we we flew up to Delhi, um, took a train to uh, to Amritsar, and then from there um, went into. Jeez, um, uh, it's been so long. Um, please remind me the, the the Himalayans, the the big Himalayan city. Did you go to? Oh, did you go to uh, Dharamshala? Yes, Dharamshala. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's. It's been a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite an interesting trip. Yeah. India is a big place. <laughs> as you know, it's, it's hard to see it all, but uh, yeah, we spent, we spent uh, half the time in the South and then the other half up North. We didn't, we didn't um, spend too much time, you know, in like the middle of the country. Right. That's a very contrasting social experience and culinary experience going from yeah. South to North. <laughs> It was it was incredible. Um, yeah, I, I loved it. But yeah, you're you're right when you're, when you're talking about um, you know the the social culture um, and different boundaries and personal space. Yeah, it, it was um, yeah for someone living in in Ottawa, Canada, um, a very unique experience. Just being 
always talking to somebody, always surrounded by people. You know, like when I was sketching in India, um, some some people would sit on my lap while I was drawing. You know, it was it was like 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 hugging and holding and you know kids would be putting their their fingers in my paint i'm like all right this is this is this is it your your skin is literally the extent of your personal space yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is no more space to spare yeah that's so true and even what you were saying about just simply having time in the morning to sit and talk for two hours somewhere with anybody uh, like I grew up in India, so I completely know how that feeling goes. But even I, whenever I visit, I'm just amazed at how anything gets done when everything takes so much time and nothing works according to a plan or any kind of like traffic can derail your day's plans by two hours or three hours. But still, everybody operates around it. And the bureaucracy is there. And it's so big. And it's a part of like, you know, it's it's on us but it's also the way it is because of how we are so people operate in a lawless way because there are so many laws that you can skirt and it would the lawlessness would not work if there weren't laws so the bureaucracy is necessary in order for people to ignore it or to work around it and uh, that's it's a very odd uh, symbiotic relationship that they have with each other and I think it's a characteristic of all old places in in my experience. Right. Yeah, I loved it. Loved it. All right, Tom, this has been a super fantastic conversation for me. I've learned so many things from speaking to you, especially about the early part of our conversation was all revelation after revelation for me. So this was super useful and I'm so glad we connected. Yeah, likewise, Nishant. This was super fun. I, I forgot that we were doing a, a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that as a lovely, excellent compliment. This is yeah. a, a mission accomplished for me in that case. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been fun. I mean, yeah, good, good job. And we got to—I can't believe we got to touch on everything. That's a lot of a lot of subjects we 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 crisscrossed and connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I hope I hope we get to go sketching together someday in real life. Yeah, hopefully soon. I hope. Uh, yeah, in a few months. But again, in a few months, it's going to be winter. So. hopefully soon we get to do something it would be absolutely amazing i need to visit that part of canada i have only ever seen vancouver yeah it's very similar except um the hills are very small hello listeners if you have reached until the end of this super long episode i want to credit your resilience and enthusiasm you are a champion And if you're not done with us yet, I should tell you there's nearly an hour more to listen if you become a Sneaky Art Insider. And just because this is the first time I'm offering a postscript conversation, I'm also offering a 7-day free trial to all of my subscription content. You can find that link in the show notes as well. Thank you for all your time and for your attention. I'll see you in the next one.